This is Audible. Audible Studios presents The Complete Book of Five Rings. Written by Miyamoto Musashi. Edited and translated by Kenji Tokitsu. Narrated by Brian Nishi. Introduction A Legendary Figure. In popular Japanese culture, Miyamoto Musashi is a legendary figure. This warrior of the 17th century, a master of the sword, but also a painter, sculptor, and calligrapher, left us a body of written work that has an important place in the history of the Japanese sword. His dense and brief Gorin no Sho, or Writings on the Five Elements, popularly known as the Book of Five Rings, is a summary of the art of the sword and a treatise on strategy. Although the painting, sculpture, and calligraphy of Musashi are less well known, they are considered by connoisseurs to be of the first order. Because of the extension of his art into so many domains and the way in which he explored the limits of the knowledge of his time, Miyamoto Musashi reminds us of Leonardo da Vinci. His personality and his adventurous life have been popularized by a famous novel and many films. Here, I present a completely new and annotated translation of the principal work of Miyamoto Musashi. Because of its concision, the Gorin no Sho is a hard text for contemporary Japanese people to understand. The misunderstandings can only be greater for Westerners, who might draw the impression from the apparent clarity of the text that they are understanding it, when in fact the author's essential ideas are eluding them. For this reason, I have accompanied the text with clarifications, some of which are historic, others linguistic, and still others related to the nature of martial arts practice. I undertook this project even though several translations of the Gorin no Sho already exist. Through careful rereading the Japanese text, I discovered that these translations contained many errors or misunderstandings. Translation of this work is a difficult undertaking because of the considerable evolution the Japanese language has undergone since Musashi's time, but even more so because of the major problem connected with the role. At once limited and important, played by verbal explanation in the traditional martial arts. That which is expressed in words is a little like the knot in an obi. Only the knot is manifest, visible, but without the continuity of the belt, the whole thing would not hold together. What takes on meaning in the nodal point of the word is the entirety of a shared experience. The principal mode of transmission of the martial arts was direct teaching. Words played a small role, and writing was confined for the most part to a simple enumeration of technical terms. This approach did not stem from respect for tradition. Rather, it was connected with the very considerable difficulty of communicating techniques of the body and mind in writing. In the Scroll of Water, The second section of the Gorin no Sho, for example, when Musashi explains techniques in words, it is difficult to understand, since the execution of each technique takes only a few seconds. The description in writing of a movement of the body that lasts only a few seconds is very complex. 
I continually have this experience in my own work. Nevertheless, at certain moments in the course of a student's development, a single word can trigger a profound understanding of the art by creating a new order for the experiences accumulated in the silence of physical practice. Musashi's words have this objective. One of the big obstacles in translating the work of Musashi lies in this gap between his words and his body. I have attempted to bridge this gap through my own experience of Budo, for the Gorin no Sho is one of the books that serve me as a guide in the practice of the way of martial arts. The name and image of Musashi have been familiar to me from earliest childhood through stories, films, and later novels. Musashi reappeared for me in the form of the Gorin no Sho at a time when, after several years of practicing karate, I began to wonder about the relationship between this art and the tradition of the sword, which I saw as the essence of Budo. It should be noted that from the cultural and ideological point of view, the tradition of karate is different in some respects from that of Budo. Karate was a local practice transmitted secretly on the island of Okinawa in the extreme south of Japan, and it was not included in the framework of Budo until around 1930. The degree of technical refinement and depth that had been reached by karate at that time was nowhere near that of the Japanese art of the sword. Nonetheless, it quickly emerged, after the presentation of karate to the Japanese public, that this art fit in well with the modern life of the 20th century and was capable of developing as a contemporary form of budo. For this discipline, newly a part of budo, the most important reference point was the Japanese art of the sword. By relying on this tradition, and particularly that of kendo and judo, karate found its budo form. Hence, for Japanese karate practitioners, writings on the art of the sword became the cultural and technical reference points for their art. As a result, the Gorin no Sho has been my companion for the last 25 of my 40-plus years of practicing Budo. Of course, the intensity of my practice is not of the same order as Musashi's, but I have tried to bridge the gap between Musashi's words and the body through my own practice, however limited. The other difficulty encountering and translating the Gorin no Sho is more classical. How is it possible to bring out the proper sense of a word when the cultures involved are as different as those of the contemporary Western world and Japan of the 17th century? I will give you just one example. In this work, Musashi very frequently uses the term kokoro, which is customarily translated mind or heart. Many sentences, if translated literally, would yield expressions such as your mind must be resolute, tight, calm, and so on. Since the English language makes much greater use of expressions in which the person takes on the role of the subject, the translation that seems to me to render these Japanese expressions the best is be determined, tight, calm, and so on. The idea expressed in Japanese by kokoro is included in the English personal form of the subject. In English, when you say, be calm, 
The underlying idea is that the mind should be calm, the primacy of the mind over the body being implicitly understood. In Japanese, this primacy is not assumed in the same way. Musashi wrote, The mind should not be pulled about by the body. The body should not be pulled about by the mind. This way of distinguishing the mind and body was established within the context of a way of thinking and a language in which the prevailing tendency is to mix the mind and body together non hierarchically and in which an analytical effort has to be made to distinguish them. A superficial interpretation might see an affirmation of dualistic thinking in such remarks as Musashi's above, whereas, quite to the contrary, we find in such remarks efforts aimed at establishing distinctions that are not taken for granted. All through this work, proper names have been given in the order customary in Japan, that is, with the patronymic preceding the personal name. For warriors, one or several personal names or names linked to their function may be added. In this society of warriors, the system of names was more complicated than it is in the present day. Patronymics and personal names are variable, being determined by several factors. For example, Musashi, during different periods of his life and in different circumstances, was referred to by the following family names Hirata, Takemura, Shinmen, Hirao, and Miyamoto. To his personal name, Musashi, which was then a common personal name, he attached a warrior suffix, sometimes Masana, sometimes Masanobu. In addition, when a warrior claimed connection by distant kinship with one of the great historical clans, he also put a reference to this in his name. In the Gorin no Sho, for example, Musashi refers to himself as Shinmen Musashi no Kami, Fujiwara no Genshin. Shinmen was the name of the lord of whom his family were vassals, and Fujiwara was the name of one of the most important clans starting in the 7th century. Finally, Genshin was the personal name chosen by him or his family to designate him within this clan. Genshin would be the Buddhist name for Musashi. To simplify these very long names, after the second appearance, I have designated a historical person by his personal name, since the personal name of a historical person was generally more specific and distinctive than his family name. Thus, I have used Musashi rather than Miyamoto, since the name Musashi, for the Japanese, calls to mind most of the time Miyamoto Musashi. But if you write Miyamoto, you are not necessarily referring to Miyamoto Musashi. Place names in Japanese include specifications such as village, island, or temple. I also preceded the names with these specifications in my translations, in spite of the redundancy, in order to make things easier for those who do not know Japanese. For dates, the number of the month has been kept, as in the Japanese system. In order to make the chronology clear for those who do not know Japanese, the years are given according to the Western system, despite the risk of some disparity. To be specific, the life of Musashi runs between the twelfth year of the Tensho period, which corresponds on the whole to the year 1584. 
and the second year of the Shōhō period, which in the same way corresponds to the year 1645. The strategy of combat, as well as reflection on it, constitutes the basic background of Musashi's life and conferred on it several dimensions. It was his constant reaching toward creating an expression of his art in writing that gives a unique quality to Musashi's work. In his youth, at around the age of 22, Musashi wrote a scroll entitled Writings on the Sword Technique of the Emmeiryu, Emmeiryu Kenbosho. Emmeiryu was the first name Musashi used to designate his school. En means circle or perfection. Me means light or clarity. Ryu means school. This image is derived from one of the techniques of the school, in which the practitioner holds his two swords in such a way as to call up the image of a circle. This work contains 22 instructions having to do exclusively with the art of the sword. The Gorin no Sho was preceded by other works that appear to function somewhat as sketches for it. In 1641, Musashi wrote the 35 Instructions on Strategy, Hyōhō Sanju Gokajō, a work written for Hosokawa Tadatoshi, the lord of Kumamoto on Kyushu, with whom Musashi stayed as a guest during the last period of his life. This scroll, composed of instructions on the art of the sword, is very similar to the Gorin no Sho. Finally, just before his death, Musashi composed another text, The Way to be Followed Alone, Dokodo, in which he distills his final thoughts. Most of the time, the reflection provoked by the in-depth practice of a martial art is allowed to feed back into the practice itself without being exteriorized, except perhaps in the form of brief aphorisms. As a practitioner of Budo, I myself feel the difficulty of putting my experience into writing, as though, having immersed myself in water, I were immediately to try to turn the pages of a book without getting them wet. The work of Musashi stands out all the more because very few accomplished practitioners have written on the martial arts, especially during the period when the system of transmission was direct. This exceptional quality is borne out by the limited number of works on the art of the sword written during the two and a half centuries of the Edo period, 1603-1867. The number appears very small in view of the large number of practitioners of the art. There are several reasons why so few texts have been written on the arts of combat. The Difficulty of Explaining the Practice in Words Practitioners are generally content to progress on the way of practice without writing about it. Since intensive practice requires a person to immerse himself fully and deeply in his actions, an objective written description is difficult, for it requires one to assume some distance from the practice. If the practitioner has recourse to language, it is usually selectively in order to bring out an intuition rather than pursue a line of logic. Moreover, studying the practice of an art of combat in depth is not always compatible with writing about this art, for the process of going into the practice deeply means acquiring a capacity for sensory motor reactivity that goes beyond the reach of mental reflection.
spontaneous movement and intuitive comprehension are reinforced, and one must avoid increasing the gap between perception and reaction by adding the pitfalls of intellectual speculation. Reflection is a part of Budo, but it must be self-directed, introspective reflection that is not allowed to intervene in the moment of combat where the spontaneity of movement is essential. However, as Musashi wrote, combat is not confined to the moment when it is actually taking place. In Musashi's time, when confrontations were direct, it was enough for the majority of accomplished practitioners to immerse themselves deeply in their practice and limit themselves to a few words, just enough for quasi-subliminal hints intelligible to their students. In the transmission of a school's art, sometimes a language developed that was unintelligible to outsiders, based on a very broad intuitive register and seldom going in the direction of logical development. From that point of view, Musashi's work is exceptional. Nonetheless, looked at from our present point of view, his logic does not always seem coherent, and the meaning of his words is not always precise. If his words had been received directly from him in the flesh, with swords in hand, these verbal inexactitudes and ambiguities would not have been important, because Musashi's body and swords would easily have dispelled the ambiguities. However, three and a half centuries now separate us. Someone who practices a martial art in depth and trains every day to the point of exhaustion has a tendency to develop a relationship with words that becomes prosaic or perfunctory at the same time as the intuitive aspect of his participation grows. He will tend to distance himself from long-winded objective reflection. He develops an intuition that can find a profound or manifold meaning in a single expression or a single ideogram. The sense of fullness that comes from these intensive physical exercises reduces the amplitude of logical sequences. It is only when the practitioner crosses the threshold of another dimension, where the sensation of fullness is realized through a stable treading of the way, that words will become more tangible. Thus, it is no surprise that Musashi wrote his major work just before his death, even though he had been trying to write since his youth. The Major Importance of the Art of Combat for Japanese Warriors During Musashi's time, the tradition of a period of war was reflected directly in the way warriors practiced the sword. In the time that followed, with the coming of social stability, the symbolic aspect of the art of combat progressively increased in importance, and the link between that art and a warrior's morality became more intimate. At the same time, the schools, now less involved in actual combat, became more dependent on feudal lords. These lords, to build up their prestige, emphasized the secrecy of the teachings of their schools. This secrecy might well have been compromised by the production of writings. The Relationship Between Speech and Action Among Japanese Warriors The proverb, Speech is silver, silence is gold, is found in both the West and Japan, but it is interpreted and experienced in very different ways. 
The Japanese interpret this phrase as placing absolute value on silence and expressing contempt for eloquence. But this does not suggest contempt for words. On the contrary, it stresses the importance placed on every word. A worthy warrior spoke little because he knew the importance of words. The word was conceived in terms of the role it might play in a possible chain of cause and effect, even if this were to remain virtual. Like a sword, a word can wound or kill, but as long as one does not touch the blade, the sword is no more than a smooth piece of metal. Someone who knows the qualities of a sword does not play with it, and someone who knows the nature of words does not play with them. Warriors attributed power and effective action to words, especially names. That is why the name of a technique was an important secret for someone seeking to understand the mind behind it. Anonymous transmission of a martial art did not exist, at least for warriors. For them, the simple knowledge of how to do something was limited and incomplete. The ultimate transmission was in the name. For this reason, the ultimate transmission of a school often took place through communication of the names of all the techniques, of which the practitioner had already, for the most part, attained mastery. One did not fully acquire the technique of a school until it had been named. Miyamoto Musashi, 1584-1645, a contemporary of René Descartes, 1596-1650, lived at a turning point in the history of Japan, at the end of the period of feudal wars, at the moment when Japanese society was beginning to stabilize. Musashi witnessed the advent of the new system of warrior values, which was to be characterized by progressive internalization. Through his thought on strategy, which is pervaded by the philosophy of the period, we gain access to one of the roots of the culture of the Edo period. The name of Miyamoto Musashi is known to Westerners through translations of the Godin no Sho, and especially through the translation of the novel by Yoshikawa Eiji entitled Musashi. Yoshikawa's novel ends with the famous duel between Musashi and Kojiro at Ganryujima. Musashi was 29 at the time of this fight, which was the period of his youth concerning which we have the least imprecise documentation. The popularity Yoshikawa's image of Musashi has enjoyed over several generations shows that the novelist was able to distill in his character the ideal image of the samurai to which the Japanese people were attached. Miyamoto Musashi had been renowned in Japan for a long time, but Yoshikawa's novel made him famous on a popular level with the public as a whole. The author accentuated the introspective side of his personality. People sometimes say Yoshikawa Musashi to refer to the image that the Japanese public has of Miyamoto Musashi today. This novel was published as a serial in a daily paper from 1935 to 1939. It is, in a way, an expression of the position Yoshikawa took in the debate over Miyamoto Musashi's true qualities that was going on among Japanese writers at the beginning of the 1930s. Naoki, a famous writer of samurai novels, triggered the polemic by writing that Musashi did not achieve excellence in the sword until a few years before his death. His view is that in his youth, 
Musashi was no more than an expert in publicizing himself, and that his strength in the sword was not extraordinary. He takes as his proof Musashi's duel against Sasaki Kojiro, in which Musashi used a wooden sword so as to have a sword longer than Kojiro's. Moreover, he deliberately delayed the time of the fight in order to disconcert his adversary. Naoki adds that although, as Musashi himself wrote, he had had more than 60 duels during his lifetime, most of them were against little-known samurai. This viewpoint is not entirely devoid of truth, but it is primarily based on suppositions. Another writer attacked this position and defended Musashi's qualities. The debate grew, and Yoshikawa was drawn into the controversy. What was important about this debate is that it touched upon the way the Japanese cultural identity was being presented, a particularly sensitive issue at the moment when Japanese society was preparing for the Second World War. Since Yoshikawa's book appeared, numerous works have been published on Musashi in Japan. The historical documents concerning Musashi are fragmentary but relatively numerous. They are not rich enough to allow us to construct a precise image of his personality, but they are sufficient to provide food for the imagination. These documents taken together seem to be equivalent to a small fragment of some piece of Greek pottery on the basis of which we might imagine a jar or a vase. Although the image of Musashi is vague, the features that emerge are very potent, strong in odor and color. It is difficult to maintain neutrality in the face of such an image. Either you like it or you do not. It seems to me that it is essentially primal attitudes of this sort that form the main basis for the disparate positions in the assessments of Musashi and his work evinced by contemporary Japanese authors. The members of one group, for example, Ezaki, Shunpei, and Naoki, do not like or even detest the image they hold of Musashi. These writers consider him a cunning and accomplished practitioner, but a second-class figure in the history of the Japanese martial arts. Some go so far as to characterize him as a paranoiac. In their view, the Gorin no Sho is a rather mediocre work. A second group, for example, Shiba Ryotaro, Tobe Shinichiro, and Saotome Mitsugu, judges the work and martial art of Musashi positively, but separates it from their assessment of him personally. In the view of these writers, Musashi was doubtless a great and accomplished artist and practitioner of the martial arts, but his personality is considered unbalanced by some of them and unwholesome by others. They do not like Musashi, but they do appreciate the quality of his accomplishments. A third group, such as Fukuhara Josen, Imai Masayuki, Nakanishi Seizo, Terayama Danchu, Morita Monjuro, and Naramoto Tatsuya, assesses both the accomplishments and the personality of Musashi positively. These writers consider his art, both martial and fine, as an overall reflection of his personality. The majority of works on Musashi belong to this category and in many cases display no critical distance. A fourth group, for example, Takayanagi Mitsutoshi and Watanabe Ichiro, 
somewhat steps back from its personal appreciation of Musashi. These writers situate his works within their historical period and appreciate them particularly for their originality. Their attitude seems to be the most scientific, but in their method, they do not go beyond brief commentaries on the texts. Thus, for Takayanagi, the Godin no Sho is difficult to understand mainly because of the lack of organization in Musashi's writing. But despite this defect, Musashi's work is admirable when one takes into account the shortcomings of his time, in which the distinction between religion and science was not sufficiently developed. Though it is perhaps still possible to criticize the swordsmanship of Musashi, since it belongs to the past, by contrast, his calligraphies, ink paintings, and sculptures have come down to us. Their artistic quality is undeniable, and they are well known in the history of Japanese art. True, the Godin no Sho is difficult to understand, but its style appears relatively clear when compared with the works of Musashi's contemporaries. And as far as the content is concerned, only a great adept of the sword could have written it. As Musashi wrote, Because I apply the principle of the sword to the other arts, I no longer have a need for a teacher in these other domains. The quality of his work, taken overall, indicates that he could only have excelled in the art of the sword. My way of presenting Musashi takes historical research as its point of departure, but is somewhat different from the approach of the historians, because I interpret the texts on the basis of my experience in the martial arts and attempt to derive from them teachings applicable to martial arts practice. How can we assess Musashi's practice of the sword? During this period, Confrontations with the sword between practitioners of different schools, in most cases, meant death for one of the participants. The decision to make or accept a challenge demanded the utmost prudence. Mere bravado was not enough to survive a duel to the death. One had to have a level of accomplishment that was equal to that of the adversary. Now, it is undeniable that Musashi never made a mistake in accurately assessing the strength of an adversary. This made it possible for him to avoid fighting an enemy capable of defeating him. The word mikiri became the established term for characterizing this particular acuity of Musashi's perception. The origination of this term is attributed to him, but I have been unable to find it in his writings. The literal translation is mi, look, or see, and kiri, cut. This means to see with cutting minuteness, or to cut through with a look, which amounts to discerning the state of situations or things with incisive precision. In my view, this precise discernment characterizes the sword of Musashi as well as his aesthetic expressions. If he judged his adversary as potentially his superior, he avoided fighting him. Discernment of incisive precision was, for Musashi, the basis of individual and collective strategy. Mikiri distills in one word one of the teachings of Sun Tzu. If you know yourself and you know your enemy, you will not lose one fight in a hundred. For Musashi, 
just being strong individually was not of such great value, because he knew that the strength of a single person is limited and even insignificant in the unfolding of a large battle, such as those he participated in several times in the course of his life. He would have preferred to apply his talent fully on a larger scale, because he felt he had discovered a principle applicable to all phenomena of life. From the end of his adolescence, Musashi began to travel and engage in many duels. The age of 30 marked a change in his life. He continued to travel in order to deepen his art of swordsmanship, but he no longer sought out duels as he had before. At the same time, he was looking for a feudal lord who would entrust him with the elaboration of large-scale strategies. However, Musashi's rigor and precision sometimes made as disquieting an impression as the blade of his sword. This is something that can also be seen in his works of art. This is without doubt one of the reasons he was not able to obtain the position he was looking for with one of the great feudal lords. I am convinced that Musashi was a very great master of the sword, but I also think that several masters in the history of Japanese swordsmanship attained a level that was equivalent or superior to his. To reach an accurate evaluation of Musashi's martial art and personality, it seems indispensable to situate them within the history of the art of the sword in Japan. This is because, and Musashi's work is an expression of this, his period was the time at which the art of the sword began to pass beyond the sphere of military technique and merge with the practical notion of the way. The art of the sword was on its way to becoming, both technically and morally, a formative element in the life of the Japanese warrior. In accordance with the custom of the time, in referring to himself, Musashi used the term bushi, warrior, which means practitioner of arms. This was a reference to the division of Japanese society into four hierarchical social classes, warrior, peasant, artisan, and merchant, which the Tokugawa government had already firmly institutionalized by Musashi's time. By using the word bushi, warriors indicated their place in this hierarchy. This term appeared in the Nara period, 8th century, and progressively supplanted the older term mononofu, signifying men who knew how to use weapons and were courageous. Samurai comes from saburai, the substantive form of the verb saburau, which means to serve or to remain at the side of someone important and was itself an evolved form of the older samurau. Starting with the Heian period, 794 to 1145, samurai designated warriors who were in the service of nobles. Little by little, it came to be used by members of the other classes to refer to warriors in general. However, within the warrior class itself, it was used to refer to those most highly placed in the hierarchy. For example, the townspeople might call anybody who wore the two swords a samurai, but among warriors, this term was not applied to those who occupied the lower levels of the hierarchy. The power of the warriors became further established during the Heian period, especially starting with the 10th century, when the power of the government weakened in the provinces. The powerful gozoku, 
regional authority families began to fight to protect and increase the territory they had acquired. They developed their military capabilities so they could govern the local peasants by themselves and protect themselves against rival powers, as well as the representatives of the state. They built themselves up into larger groups, united by ties of blood, and also, for those who succeeded in becoming part of it, by a strong consciousness of belonging to the group. These armed groups, called bushidang, developed in the provinces. Their moral values were based largely on the cult of ancestors and on family relations, which were expanded to form a clan hierarchy, as well as on values arising from the personal valor of combatants. The warrior art to which warriors at first attached their identity was archery. Yumiya Torumi, literally, he who knows how to shoot a bow, designated men of war during the Kamakura period. Yumi no Ie designated a family that excelled in the art of archery and thus a family of warriors. Such warriors fought from horseback, mainly with the bow. When the use of the sword on horseback spread, it brought about a modification in swords, which began to take on a curved form. The mode of combat changed progressively, and in the 14th and 15th centuries, the sword assumed first place among the arts of the warriors and became their emblematic weapon. However, it would be inaccurate to think that the Japanese art of the sword developed in isolation because the metallurgy connected with it came from China via Korea, and in the wake of this, interaction with these countries increased further. During Musashi's time, the art of the sword was dominant, and there were numerous schools teaching sword technique. Thus, in order to gain a clear understanding of the life of Musashi, who founded a school of swordsmanship, several branches of which still exist today, it seems essential to situate him within the history of Japanese schools of the sword. The Main Periods in the History of Japanese Schools of Swordsmanship The Formative Period, 15th to 16th Centuries A decisive period in the formation and evolution of the way of the sword extends from the end of the 14th century to the beginning of the 17th century. Later, this period was to become a point of reference for masters and practitioners of the sword. Of course, the art of the sword in Japan is much more ancient than this. In the course of the 10th century, the shape of swords was modified, and the curved sword gradually replaced the straight sword. These changes were a reflection of a development of techniques in which the action of slashing became increasingly important. The elevation of the social status of warriors went hand-in-hand hand with the evolution of combat techniques. By the 11th century, the change in the form and technique of the Japanese sword was becoming widespread. Before this, the military force was overwhelmingly composed of foot soldiers who used the straight sword, mainly for stabbing. With the development of local military groups, whose large estates permitted them to keep horses, mounted warriors assumed the primary place. The technique and form of the sword transformed little by little to facilitate the combat of fighters on horseback, for whom slashing is easier than stabbing. Curvature of the sword became important. 
the curved sword gradually came to be dominant, and slashing techniques were extended to combat on foot. The curved form of the sword stabilized beginning in the 12th century, and the name Nihonto, Japanese sword, was used to differentiate this curved sword from the straight sword, which preserved direct Chinese influence. The increase in the number of swords forged shows the dominance the sword was assuming, especially in the period from the 12th through the 14th centuries. The Nihonto, Japanese swords, made during the 6th centuries from the end of the 10th to the beginning of the 17th, the Keicho era, are classified as ancient swords and called koto. They are of a high quality that has not been equaled since. We know the names of more than 5,500 master smiths of ancient swords. According to Mitsuhashi Shuzo, there were 450 swordsmiths from the 10th century to 12th centuries, Heian period. 1,550 swordsmiths from the 13th to the middle of the 14th century, Kamakura period. 3,550 swordsmiths from the middle of the 14th to the end of the 16th century. In tandem with the evolution of the form of the sword, there was a remarkable surge in the development of sword technique. However, dependable documents on schools of swordsmanship do not go back beyond the end of the 14th century. Despite the fact that most schools like to claim that their roots go back to the Kamakura period, 1185 to 1333, or still further back, the lineages of the main traditional schools of the sword can be traced with certainty only back to the middle of the 15th century. From the last third of the 15th century until the end of the 16th, Japan was the scene of continual warfare among the feudal lords. It was through experience on the battlefield that the sword masters of that period developed their sword technique as well as their basic attitudes towards swordsmanship. The techniques of that period were relatively simple but forceful, since armor was worn in battle. Combatants used existing techniques, but also carried on their own personal search for more effective ones, based on their own experience. While continuing to accept the idea that the true ability to fight comes from actual battlefield experience, some warriors began to attach importance to training, to daily preparation for combat. This included matches that often took place without armor, which resulted in the development of greater subtlety and technique. The practice exercises called kumitachi or tachiuchi consisted in reproducing combat techniques derived from the experience of various masters. These exercises, in which either a real or a wooden sword was used, became standardized. Miyamoto Musashi lived at the end of this formative period of the classical schools of swordsmanship. Period of further development, 17th and 18th centuries. According to my analysis, we can consider the 17th and 18th centuries as the birth period of Budo. This period in which the art of the sword was developed further, extends from the second half of the 17th century to the beginning of the 19th century. 
The shoguns of the Tokugawa family established and stabilized their power over the whole of Japan between 1600 and 1640. They imposed a strong rule that brought about a long period of peace, which lasted until the middle of the 19th century. This meant that warriors had to adjust progressively to a peacetime role. At the time of the feudal wars, one could have summed up the value of a warrior's swordsmanship by answering the following questions. How many heads can he cut off? In time of peace, this simple pragmatism transformed into an effort directed toward advancement in swordsmanship as an art. Since the way of action was closed to them, the swordmasters internalized their art. It became a quest for the way, do. The level of commitment to this quest was deepened by the fact that the way, do, derived a part of its meaning from the relationship between the lord and his vassals. The objective for the practitioner became finding a means to make progress in the way of the sword without really killing his adversary. From this point on, swordsmen no longer used armor, and sword technique was modified because there was no need for the forceful techniques that made it possible to kill an enemy through his armor. Masters developed subtle techniques that took into account the freedom of movement made possible by town clothes. The art of the sword reached its apex toward the end of this period. In the middle of the 18th century, certain schools began to train with the shinai, bamboo sword, and to use armor again. These developments became general by the end of the 18th century. These safety measures were conducive to unlimited matches between practitioners, and this encouraged the elaboration of technique within each school. Autonomous trends within schools multiplied. At this point, we can enumerate as many as 700 schools of the sword. As the art of the sword became increasingly refined, it became a major vehicle for the energy of warriors within a Japanese society that was becoming closed toward the outside world. Warriors heightened their art while almost never using it in real confrontations. They killed each other every day in practice, but in reality they avoided death. Nevertheless, the idea that combat to the death could become an actuality at any moment remained the basic reference point for the warrior's state of mind. At the same time, through the elaboration of technique, the idea of harmony began to infiltrate deeper and deeper into the basic antagonism inherent in the use of weapons. The art of the warriors flourished under a variety of names, bujutsu, bugei, kenjutsu, gekiken, tojutsu, Kempo. In all these disciplines, the energy of antagonistic confrontation remained dominant, symbolized by the wearing of the warrior's sword. The sword that accompanied a warrior everywhere still represented the fundamental idea of kill or be killed. The Flowering of the Art of the Sword, 19th Century the third period of the history of schools of the sword encompasses most of the 19th century. 
The art of the sword flowered at the time when its power became a major factor in putting an end to the feudal period, which had been the period of the sword's dominance. At the beginning of the 19th century, swordsmanship passed through a brief period of decadence, for as the period of wars became more remote, the sword became disassociated from the reality of combat, and the position of warriors became uncertain. But then, quickly, the threat represented by Westerners provided warriors with a renewed consciousness of their role. In the course of the second half of the century, Japan passed through a succession of troubles connected with the threat of invasion by Western powers. This was the time when the Japanese began to become aware of the power of the Westerners and to look for the most effective means of opposing them. This attitude, and a new awareness of society as a whole, was reflected in the manner in which warriors practiced swordsmanship. The art of the sword had reached a high point during the preceding period, but in becoming disassociated from the reality of combat, it entered a decadent phase. The conflicts that pervaded Japanese society produced new needs, and the art of the sword then reached a level of fruition in which it produced sparks of steel between the two parties into which warriors were now divided, one defending the shogunate, the other seeking to oust this system of government. The reign of the shoguns came to an end in 1867, and the new regime as part of its plan to set up a modern military and industrial power, abolished the privileges of the warriors. In spite of these difficulties, some of those who had survived the confrontations of the period of transition continued the tradition and practice of the sword. They had to put up with the prohibition against carrying a sword and come to grips with the then-prevailing tendency to discredit traditional culture, which was the support of their identity. The sword of the warrior disappeared at the end of the 19th century with the death of those who had lived through the last period of actual sword combat. The notion of budo was born at the moment in which the class of warriors disappeared and the values of feudal society began to dissolve into the depths of modern society. Even though budo takes tradition as its basis, it is a modern notion. It defines a practice that takes shape around a kind of dilemma. Arms are fundamentally offensive, but Budo's striving for quality in the art of arms contains within it an impulse directed toward the evolution of human beings as such, and this in turn implies a seeking for harmony, an element that is in apparent conflict with the objectives of combat. The ideal goal of Budo is combat in which aggressive energy is perfectly balanced by its opposite component, harmony. Kendo, 19th and 20th centuries. The conception and practice of Kendo developed and took on definitive form toward the end of the Meiji period, 1868 to 1912, in the latter part of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th. The name itself dates from this period. Kendo is a modern reformulation of the warrior's art of the sword, in which combat is practiced mainly with shinai and armor. Thus, the kendo of today is not exactly the same art practiced by the sword masters of old.
Although this period was short, it was important because of the intermediary role it played between the kendo that was a continuation of the historical warrior's practice and modern kendo. From 1945 to the present. The destruction in Japan in 1945 was major, and in the shock of defeat, Japanese society as a whole was challenged. After the war, Japan was occupied, the pressure exercised by the Allies was heavy, and the practice of the martial arts was forbidden. Practitioners of karate were the first to get permission to resume their discipline, which they presented as a form of boxing. This comparison to Western boxing allowed them to put karate in the category of a sport. This did not work for Kendo, for even when practiced with bamboo swords, it continued to evoke the strange barbarity of wartime Japan. Kendo practitioners tried to perpetuate Kendo under the name Shinai Kyogi, game like competition with Shinai, by transforming the techniques of Kendo to make it resemble a sport like activity that would be acceptable in the eyes of the occupiers. To this end, they glossed over as much as possible the traditional aspect of the discipline with its costumes and customs, and followed the model of European fencing. This experience continued to be one of the shaping factors in the transformations that led to contemporary kendo. Indeed, when kendo was able to resume in 1952, it was in the context of a society that had changed. And the spirit of the practice had been changed by integrating into it the modern idea of a combat sport. In parallel with all this, a certain number of ancient schools of the sword continued, and continued down to the present day, to transmit their techniques in the traditional form but with a very limited number of practitioners. Let us summarize the main lines of this history. In the beginning, the nature of the sword was obvious. The blade was the main thing. It killed in a bloody way. Spirituality had little place in the practice of the sword. In the next phase, the sword continued to be there, but it was in a scabbard. It killed less frequently, almost none at all. Sword practice was more a matter of technique. And it coexisted with spirituality. The notion of Do, developed in association with the consciousness of one's duty toward the ruler. With the disappearance of the class of warriors and the prohibition against carrying a sword, the Shinai supplanted the sword in the practice of the art, and a new conception of the way, Do, was formed in connection with the idea of Budo. This was a modern reforging of tradition that proposed as its overall objective the training of the human being as such in conformity with the expectations of 19th century society. Chronology of Musashi's Life Certain contradictions exist among the documents relating to Miyamoto Musashi's life. I have put together the following chronology by selecting the most plausible ones among the currently accepted hypotheses concerning the events of Musashi's life in view of the elements actually known to us. 
According to the ancient system, a person is considered to be one year old during the course of the year following his birth. For example, according to the Godin no Sho, Musashi fought at the age of 13, but according to the modern system currently in use, this corresponds to the age of 12. In references to Musashi's age in the following chronology, I have used the modern system. 1578. Birth of Jirota, older brother of Musashi, who died in 1660. Musashi also seems to have had two sisters. 1584. Birth of the child who was to be known as Miyamoto Musashi during the third month in the village of Miyamoto Sanomo, Mimasaki region. He received the name of Bennosuke. His father's name was Hirata Munisai, and his mother's was Omasa. His mother died on the fourth day of the third month. Munisai then married the young Yoshiko, who would act as Bennosuke's mother. 1587, three years old. Around this time, Yoshiko divorced Hirata Munisai and left for the village of Hirafuku with Bennosuke. Her family having been scattered by war, she was taken in by the adoptive son of her uncle, Tasumi Masahisa. Later, he would marry her. He already had two sons by his first marriage. Yoshiko, being uneasy about Bennosuke's future, placed him under the care of her uncle Dorin, who was a monk in the temple of Shoreang. Bennosuke received his education from Dorin and Tasumi. 1589, five years old. On the orders of his lord, Shinmen Iganokami, Munisai killed Honiden Gekinosuke, 27 years old, who was one of his disciples in the study of strategy. 1592, eight years old. Certain documents record that Munisai died this year, but this is contradicted by other documents. It is probable that the person who died at this time was Hirata Takehito, not Hirata Munisai. 1596, 12 years old. Bennosuke fought a duel with Arima Kihei of the Shinto-ryu school. The fight took place in the village of Hirafuku-mura. 1599, 15 years old. Bennosuke left the region. He visited his sister, Ogin, and her husband, Hirao Yoemon, who lived in the village of Miyamoto and gave them the family possessions, weapons, furniture, the family genealogy, and so on. In one of the documents of the village of Miyamoto, we find the following passage. Musashi left his village 90 years ago. He was accompanied by his friend Moriiwa Hikobe. At the time of their separation, the latter received from Musashi a bokken made of black wood. Musashi then went to the village of Hirafukumura to take leave of his mother Yoshiko and his stepfather Tasumi. He traveled to Tajima, Hyogo, where he fought a duel with a martial arts practitioner adept named Akiyama. 1600, 16 years old. In the Battle of Sekigahara, Musashi was part of the Army of the West. During the seventh month, he took part in an attack on Fushimi Castle, his first battle. During the eighth month, 
he took part in the defense of Gifu Castle. On the 15th of the ninth month, he took part in the Battle of Sekigahara. The West lost in a few hours. Musashi was in the battalion of Lord Ukita, who was the liege lord of Lord Shimen, of whom Musashi's family were vassals. Following this defeat, Shinmen Sokang took refuge on Kyushu. Musashi perhaps also traveled in the direction of Kyushu. Musashi perhaps also traveled in the direction of Kyushu. One legend tells us that he trained on Mount Hikosan during his stay on Kyushu. 1604, 20 years old. On the 8th of the third month, Musashi engaged in a victorious duel with Yoshioka Seijuro in the hamlet of Rendaino in the outskirts of Kyoto. Victorious duel against Yoshioka Denshichiro, younger brother of Seijuro, who had then challenged him. Combat against the clan and dojo of Yoshioka at Ichijoji, Kyoto. Musashi won the victory and killed Matashichiro, the nominal head of the Yoshioka, aged 12 or 13. According to certain documents, it was after these fights that Musashi went to Hozoin in Nara to engage in combat with the monks there, who were experts with the lance. After Nara, Musashi went to Banshu, Hyogo, and stayed at Enkoji Temple. The monk in charge of Enkoji liked the martial arts and had turned a part of the temple into a martial arts dojo. The monk's brother, Tada Hanzaburo, received teachings from Musashi in this temple. At this time, Musashi called his school Enmeiryu, and Tada Hanzaburo received the certificate of transmission of this school from Musashi. Later, Tada Genzaemon, the grandson of Hanzaburo, founded the Ensuryu on the basis of the Enmeiryu and the art of swordsmanship called Mizuno Iaijutsu, the art of drawing the sword. Musashi traveled in various regions of western Japan, using Enkoji as a base. 1605, 22 years old. One of the first certificates of transmission written by Musashi is dated this year. It ends as follows. The one and only under the sky, Miyamoto Musashi no Kami. Fujiwara Yoshitsune, signature, hand-executed seal. To Mr. Ochiai Todaemon, the auspicious day of the eleventh year of the Keicho era, 1606. 1607, 23 years old. A certificate of transmission written by Musashi's father, Miyamoto Munisai, for his disciple Tomoka Kanjuro, is dated the fifth of the ninth month, 1607, which proves that he was still living that year. Musashi went to Edo, passing by way of Nara and Yagyu. He fought a duel with Shishido Baiken, an expert with the Kusarigama, a sickle to which a chain with a steel weight on the end is attached. 1607-1611, to 23-27 years old. Having arrived in Edo, Musashi fought a duel with two advanced practitioners of the Yagyu school, Oseto and Tsujikaze. In Edo, he also fought Musou Gonnosuke, 
an expert in the art of the staff, whom he defeated without killing him. On the basis of his experience with Musashi, Musou developed his school of the art of the staff, the Shinto Musouryu. Musashi remained in Edo three or four years, traveling from time to time in the vicinity. 1609, 25 years old. Musashi participated in the clearing of new fields, working the earth with the peasants of Gyotoku in Shimousa, Chiba. Another document puts this episode in 1611. 1611, 27 years old. Musashi went to Kyoto. He visited the Myoshinji Temple, where he practiced Zazen. According to one document, at this temple he met Nagaoka Sado, a vassal of Lord Hosokawa Tadaoki, who became the lord of northern Kyushu after the Battle of Sekigahara. Nagaoka had been a student of Musashi's father, Miyamoto Munisai, who had moved to Kyushu. It is possible that Musashi made Nagaoka's acquaintance when he visited his father on Kyushu. Nagaoka spoke to Musashi about an accomplished martial arts adept named Sasaki Kojiro and proposed that he organize a duel between Kojiro and Musashi. We may surmise that this was a political move against the Sasaki clan and not merely a matter of a duel. 1612, 28 years old. Victorious duel against Sasaki Kojiro on the 13th of the fourth month on the island of Funajima, north of Kyushu. 1613, 29 years old. Musashi spent a period of time meditating at a temple on Mount Koyasan in Kishu, Wakayama Prefecture. He later stayed in Nagoya and trained some disciples, among them Takemura, a practitioner of the art of the Shuriken. 1614, 30 years old. Tenth month, the Winter Battle of Osaka. This was Musashi's fourth battle. The usual view is that Musashi was part of the Army of the West, but I believe he fought in the Army of the East under Tokugawa Ieyasu. 1615, 31 years old. Fourth month, Summer Battle of Osaka. In the course of the fifth month, the Army of the East won a decisive victory. 1616 to 1617, 32 to 33 years old. Musashi stayed at Akashi at the invitation of Lord Ogasawara. There he taught the sword and the art of the shuriken. He also participated in the construction of Akashi Castle. 1618 to 1620, 34 to 36 years old. Musashi adopted a male child who later took the name Miyamoto Mikinosuke. 1621, 37 years old. At Himeji, Musashi fought victoriously against Miyake Gunbei and three other adepts of the Togunryu in the presence of the Lord of Himeji. Musashi participated in the development of the plan of the town of Himeji. He also directed the creation of the gardens of several temples there. 1622, 38 years old. Musashi's adoptive son, Miyamoto Mikinosuke, acquired the rank of vassal of the fief of Himeji. Musashi departed again on his travels. 1623, 39 years old. Musashi went to Edo. 
1624, 40 years old. Musashi lived in Edo. He established relations with Hayashi Razan, a Confucianist scholar who was part of the shogun's government. Some historians advocate the theory that Hayashi recommended Musashi to the shogun as a swordmaster. At this time, the shogun already had two principal swordmasters, Ono Jiroemon and Yagyu Munenori. Musashi's application to the shogun ended in failure. Musashi departed, traveling in the direction of Oshu, northern Japan. He got as far as Yamagata. He adopted a second son, to whom he gave the name Miyamoto Iori. He traveled with Iori, passing through Edo, then Hokuriku, Kyoto, Ise, Kishu, finally arriving at Osaka, where he stayed for some time. According to one document, the adoption of Iori took place when he was at Yamagata. Other documents indicate that Iori was his nephew, and the adoption took place when he returned to the region of Banshu. 1625, 41 years old. Meeting with Mikinosuke in Osaka. 1626, 42 years old. In the course of the fifth month, Miyamoto Mikinosuke ended his life through seppuku, following his lord into death in accordance with tradition. Miyamoto Iori entered the service of Lord Ogasawara of Akashi, probably in the course of this year. Musashi again pressed through Nagoya, where his attempt to become a vassal of the lord of Oari did not meet with success. This lord belonged to the family of the shogun and was one of its most powerful members. Musashi searched for a lord worthy of his level and strategy. 1633, 49 years old. Lord Hosokawa Tadatoshi left Kokura for the fief of Kumamoto. Lord Ogasawara Tadasane, coming from Akashi, succeeded him at Kokura. Iori, who was in the service of this lord with the rank of vassal, accompanied him. According to certain documents, Musashi stayed at Izumo, Shimane, where he fought a duel with the vassal of the lord of Matsumoto Castle. Matsudaira Naomasa, and then with this lord himself. The lord became his student. Musashi remained for a time in this fief to teach. According to other documents, Lord Matsudaira established his residence in Izumo in 1638. If this is the case, the dates are in conflict. 1634, 50 years old. Musashi returned to Kyushu. He arrived at Kokura, where the lord was now Ogasawara Tadasane, to whom Musashi had taught the sword and the art of the shuriken. Lord Ogasawara organized a duel for Musashi against a famous lance specialist, Takada Matabe. Musashi defeated him. 1637 to 1638, 53 to 54 years old. During the tenth month of 1637, the Christians of Shimabara, Kyushu revolted against the regime, and the siege of Shimabara began. Musashi participated in the battles with Iori and directed Ogasawara's troops. Iori became the principal vassal of Lord Ogasawara. This was the sixth and final time Musashi participated in a battle. A letter from Musashi to Lord Maruoka Yuzaemon dates to this year. At this time, Nagaoka Sado 
principal vassal of Lord Hosoka probably began applying to his lord to take on Musashi as a vassal. 1639, 55 years old. Nagaoka arrived in Kokura, charged with the responsibility for the affairs of this fief. He visited Musashi, to whom he directly passed on an invitation from his lord that had already been indicated by letter. The time passed without a decision being made, and Hosoka continued with his approaches to Musashi and also to Ogasawara. 1640, 56 years old. Musashi decided to go to Lord Hosoka. At the end of the first month, he took up residence at Kumamoto. Correspondence between Musashi and the representatives of Lord Hosoka. Lord Hosoka Tadatoshi organized a duel for Musashi, meant as a means of training against Uji Magoshiro, principal martial arts master of this fief. Musashi was victorious. 1641, 57 years old. In the course of the second month, Musashi wrote the Hyoho Sanju Gokajo for Lord Hosoka Tadatoshi and practiced the arts, calligraphy, painting, tea ceremony. During the third month, Hosoka Tadatoshi died at the age of 56. His 18 vassals followed him into death, Junshi. Letter from Musashi recommending his third adoptive son, Hirao Yoemon, to one of the principal vassals of the Oari fief. Hirao Yoemon became Oari master of arms. 1642, 58 years old. Musashi fell ill and suffered attacks of neuralgia. 1643, 59 years old. Musashi departed for Mount Iwato, located near Kumamoto, where he began living in Regando Cave. He had a low table there, and on the tenth of the tenth month, he began to compose the Gorin no Sho. Letter from Musashi to Lord Hosokawa Mitsuhita, dated the eighth of the tenth month. 1645, 61 years old. Musashi lived at Regando and composed the Gorin no Sho, which he completed during the second month. Musashi sensed the approach of death. On the thirteenth of the fourth month, he wrote a letter of farewell to the three principal vassals of Hosokawa, Lords Shikibu, Kenmotsu, and Uemon, with whom he was particularly closely connected. He dedicated his last work, the Gorin no Sho, to his disciple Terao Magonojo, and gave the latter's younger brother, Terao Motomenosuke, his own copy of the Hyoho Sanju Gokajo. On the twelfth of the fifth month, Musashi distributed his possessions among those close to him. During his final days, he wrote the twenty-one articles of the Dokodo. He died on the 19th of the fifth month. We do not know for sure whether Musashi died at his home or in Regando Cave. His hair was buried at Mount Iwato, and his body, dressed in warrior's armor, was interred, in accordance with his wishes, near the main road, so that he would be able to greet the Hosokawa lords on their trips in the direction of Edo, where they periodically had to go to visit the shogun. It was in a cave called Legando, Le, soul or spirit, Gang, rock, Do, cave, where Musashi, at the age of sixty, 
set himself up to write. He spent the last two years of his life there. This cave had long been considered a sacred place. It was in the most remote part of a group of lands belonging to Iwatodera Temple. It was deep in a mountainous setting, surrounded by rocks with vivid forms, between which water fell in cascades. Near the entrance to the cave, there were several statues of deities. It was an unfrequented spot, reserved for meditation. Musashi indicated that he began writing the Gorin no Sho in this place at four o'clock in the morning on the tenth day of the tenth month of the twentieth year of the Kanne period. Why did he choose this place and this moment to begin his work? To begin the main written work of his life in this manner says something about Musashi's art of swordsmanship. Beginning this work meant ending his life, and in fact he died shortly after finishing it. To accomplish his endeavor in just the right way, he had to begin it in this place filled with the mysterious power of the mountain, before the break of day. He had to begin in a deep state of calm, by the light of a lamp, in the cool of the shadows. He welcomed the dawn by riding. This approach was indispensable for his act of writing, to become one with the nature of the sacred beings. According to the beliefs of those days, mourning is filled with positive young energy, which is at the origin of creation. Thus, Musashi was not without reasons for choosing this hour. Through paying homage to heaven and bowing before Kannon and the Buddha, his act of writing became mingled with their presence. Through this, it became a sacred act. But when he bowed to these sacred powers, it was not in the manner of a Christian bowing to an altar. In Japanese belief, the sacred takes on many forms that are accessible to human beings. By undertaking his writing in the way he did, Musashi entered the sacred world. Before his death, he wrote, I respect the Buddha and the gods, but I do not rely on them. This sentence is found in a short text entitled The Way to be Followed Alone, Dokodo, which he wrote after the Gorin no Sho. These two texts seem to have been written with the last of Musashi's life force, for it was only a week after having added to the end of his manuscript the name of his successor that Musashi died, on the nineteenth day of the fifth month of the second year of Shoho, 1645. Musashi bequeathed the Gorin no Sho to one of his disciples, Terao Magonojo Katsunobu. Later, this work would be copied by another of Musashi's disciples, who, on the fifth day of the second month of the seventh year of Kambun, 1667, gave this copy to his disciple, Yamamoto Gennosuke. It is through this copy that we know the work. The original of the Gorin no Sho, written in Musashi's own hand, has never been found. Writings on the Five Elements Gorin no Sho The Scroll of Earth School of the Two Heavens United, Niten Ichiryu, 
is the name that I give to the way of strategy. In this text, I am going to explain for the first time what I have been studying in depth for many years. At the beginning of the tenth month of the twentieth year of Kande, 1643, I came to Mount Iwato in the Higo prefecture of Kyushu to write. I pay homage to heaven. I prostrate to the goddess Kannong, and I turn toward the Buddha. My name is Shinmen Musashi no Kami, Fujiwara no Genshin, and I am a warrior, born in the prefecture of Harima. My life now adds up to 60 years. I have trained in the way of strategy since my youth, and at the age of 13, I fought a duel for the first time. My opponent was called Arima Kihei, a sword adept of the Shinto Ryu, and I defeated him. At the age of 16, I defeated a powerful adept by the name of Akiyama, who came from the prefecture of Tajima. At the age of 21, I went up to Kyoto and fought duels with several adepts of the sword from famous schools, but I never lost. Then I traveled in several fiefs and regions in order to meet the adepts of different schools. I fought more than 60 times, but not once was I beaten. All that happened between my 13th and my 28th or 29th year. At the age of 30, I reflected, and I saw that although I had won, I had done so without having reached the ultimate level of strategy. Perhaps it was because my natural disposition prevented me from straying from universal principles. Perhaps it was because my opponent lacked ability in strategy. I continued to train and to seek from morning till night to attain to a deeper principle. When I reached the age of 50, I naturally found myself on the way of strategy. Since that day, I have lived without having a need to search further for the way. When I apply the principle of strategy to the ways of different arts and crafts, I no longer have need for a teacher in any domain. Thus, in composing this book, I do not borrow from the ancient Buddhist or Confucianist writings. I do not use ancient examples from the chronicles or the tradition of the military art. I began writing on the tenth of the tenth month, at night, at the hour of the tiger, with the aim of expressing the true idea of my school, letting my mind reflect in the mirror of the way of heaven and the way of Kannon. Strategy is the practice that is necessary in warrior families. A person who directs warfare must learn it, and soldiers must also be familiar with it. Nowadays, those who know the way of strategy well are rare. As far as the way is concerned, several of them exist. The law of Buddha is the way that saves people. The way of Confucianism is the way that leads to correctness in literature. Medicine is the way that cures illnesses. The poet teaches the way of poetry. There exist a number of ways in the arts, that of the man of taste, that of the practitioner of archery, and those of other arts and crafts. Adepts train in these in their fashion, according to their manner of thinking, and are fond of them in accordance with their dispositions. 
but very few like the way of strategy. First of all, warriors must familiarize themselves with what is known as the two ways, literature and the martial arts. That is their way. Even if you are clumsy, you must persevere in strategy because of your position. That which a warrior must always have in his mind is the way of death. But the way of death is not reserved only for warriors. A monk, a woman, a peasant, any person can resolve to die for the sake of a social obligation or honor. In the way of strategy that warriors practice, the aim of action must be to surpass others in all domains. A warrior has to win in combat against one or several opponents, bring fame to his lord's name and his own, and establish his position owing to the virtue of strategy. Some people perhaps think that even if they learn the way of strategy, it will not be useful in real practice. On this point, it is sufficient to train in it for it to be useful at all times, and to teach it for it to be useful in all things. This is how the true way of strategy must be. Concerning the Way of Strategy From China to Japan, over a long time, a person who practices this way has been known as an adept of strategy. For a warrior, it is not possible not to study it. Nowadays, there are certain people to be found everywhere who declare themselves accomplished practitioners of strategy, but in general, they practice only the sword. Recently, the Shinto priests of Kantori and Kashima in the prefecture of Hitachi have founded schools, saying that their art was transmitted to them by the gods, and they have propagated their art in various fiefs. Among the ten talents and the seven arts that have long been known, strategy is considered to be a pragmatic domain. Since it is a pragmatic domain, it is not appropriate to limit it just to the technique of the sword. On the basis of the principles of the sword alone, you will not be able to understand the sword well, and you will be far from being in accord with the principles of strategy. There are people who make a profession out of selling the arts. They treat themselves as articles of merchandise and produce objects with a view to selling them. This attitude is tantamount to the act of separating the flower from the fruit, and it must be said that the fruit in this case does not amount to much. They adorn the way of strategy with flowery colors, lay out a display of techniques, and teach their way by creating first one dojo, then another. Someone who might want to learn such a way with the goal of making money should keep in mind the saying, Strategy, inadequately learned, is the cause of serious wounds. In general, four ways exist for traversing human life, those of the warrior, the peasant, the artisan, and the merchant. The first is the way of the peasant. Peasants prepare various tools and are vigilant with regard to the changing of the seasons, year after year. That is the way of the peasant. The second is the way of the merchant. A manufacturer of sake, for example, buys the necessary materials and makes profits that correspond to the quality of his product. This is the way he goes through life. 
All merchants pass through human life, making more or less profit from their businesses. That is the way of business. The third is the way of the warrior. Warriors must make various weapons and know the richness of each weapon. That is the way of the warrior. Without learning how to handle weapons, without knowing the advantages of each of them, a warrior is lacking somewhat in education. The fourth is the way of the artisan. A carpenter follows his way by skillfully making various tools and knowing well how to use them. He correctly lays out construction plans using block cords and a square. He goes through life with his art without wasting a moment. This is the way the four ways should be, those of the warrior, the peasant, the artisan, and the merchant. I am going to speak of strategy by comparing it to the way of the carpenter. This comparison has to do with a house constructed by carpenters. We speak, for example, of a noble house, a warrior house, or the four houses. We also speak of the decline or continuation of a house in the realm of art. We also speak of a house in the sense of a school or a style. It is because the term house is used in these ways that I make the comparison with the way of the carpenter. The word daiku, carpenter, is written dai, fully, ku, to be very clever at. In the same way, the way of strategy is built upon ingenuity of great fullness and scope. This is why I compare it to the way of the carpenter. If you want to learn strategy, you must contemplate these writings and train ceaselessly, the master and disciple together, so that the master is like the needle and the disciple is like the thread. Comparison of the way of strategy with the way of the carpenter. A general, like a master carpenter, should know the overall rules of the country and adjust the rules of his own province to fit with them, just as the way of the master carpenter consists in regulating the measurements of the house he is going to construct. The master carpenter learns the structural pattern for building a tower or a temple and knows the construction plans for palaces and fortresses. He builds houses by making use of people. In this way, the chief carpenter and the chief warrior resemble each other. In constructing a house, one must first choose wood that is suitable. For the front pillars, wood is chosen that is straight, without knots, and of good appearance. For the rear pillars, one chooses wood that is straight and sturdy, even if it has a few knots. It is appropriate to use woods that are less strong but of handsome appearance for the sills, the lintels, the sliding doors, and the shoji. The house will last for a long time, even if knotted or twisted wood is used, on the condition that the strength needed for the different parts of the house is accurately assessed and the qualities of the wood used are carefully examined. It is appropriate to use somewhat weak, knotty, or twisted wood for scaffolding and then afterward for heating. In using men, the master carpenter must know the qualities of the carpenters, 
In accordance with their high, medium, or low ability, he must assign them different tasks, such as construction of the tokonoma, of the sliding doors and the shoji, or of the sills, lintels, and ceilings. It is appropriate to have support framing done by those with not much skill and wedges made by the most skillful. If one is able to discern the qualities of men in this manner, work progresses quickly and efficiently. Being fast and efficient, being vigilant with regard to the surroundings, knowing substance and its function, knowing the high, medium, or low level of ambient energy, knowing how to energize the situation, and knowing the limits of things. Above all, a master carpenter must possess all those. It is the same for the principle of strategy. The Way of Strategy Both a vassal and a soldier are similar to a carpenter. The latter sharpens his tools, makes other tools, and carries them in his carpenter's box. Following the orders of the master, he accomplishes his work efficiently. His measurements will be exact for the smallest detail work as well as for the long external corridors. Sometimes he roughs out the pillars and beams with his adz, or planes the posts of the tokonoma and the shelves. Sometimes he carves open work in planks or sculpts wood. Such is the law of the carpenter. If he learns to practice the techniques of woodworking and also learns how to draw up plans, he can later become a master. A carpenter must keep his tools well sharpened and always maintain them. Only a specialist in woodworking knows how to make a precious box for a statue of the Buddha, a bookshelf, a table, a stand for a lamp, all the way down to a chopping block or a lid. Either a vassal or a soldier is similar to a carpenter. They should ponder this well. A carpenter must always keep his mind attentive to the following things. The wood must not lose its shape. The joints must hold. He must plane well but avoid over-smoothing. The wood must not warp later on. If you study the way of strategy it is necessary to examine attentively what I write here, down to the least detail. I write on strategy in five scrolls. I write my work in five scrolls, the scrolls of earth, water, fire, wind, and heaven, in order to show clearly the qualities of each of the five ways. In the scroll of earth, I present an overall vision of the way of strategy and the point of view of my school. It is difficult to arrive at the true way relying on the way of the sword alone. It is appropriate to understand details on the basis of a broad vision and to attain depth by beginning on the surface. It is necessary to plot a straight path through terrain that has been leveled. That is why I have given the name Earth to the first scroll. The second is the scroll of water. You should learn what is essential regarding the state of the mind from the nature of water. Water follows the form of a square or round vessel. It is a drop 
and also an ocean. The color of its depth is pure green, and taking this purity as my inspiration, I present my school in the scroll of water. If you succeed in clearly discerning the general principle of the art of the sword, and in this manner easily defeat one person, you can defeat any opponent. The mind is the same whether it is a matter of defeating one person or a thousand or ten thousand enemies. The strategy of a general consists in applying on a large scale what he has studied on a small scale. This is the same thing as designing a large statue of the Buddha on the basis of a model of 30 centimeters. It is difficult to explain it in detail, but the principle of strategy is to know 10,000 things from a single thing. It is in this way that I write about the content of my school in the scroll of water. The third scroll is that of fire. In this scroll, I write about war, for fire symbolizes a blazing mind, whether small or large. The way of war is the same if the situation is one against one or ten thousand against ten thousand. This should be examined well, making the mind now large, now small. Seeing what is large is easy. Seeing what is small is difficult. It is difficult to change strategy quickly when you are many, whereas a single person quickly changes his tactics in accordance with his state of mind. That is why, for such a case, it is difficult to foresee the minute details. This should be examined well. That which I write about in the scroll of fire happens in a short time. Therefore, it is necessary to train in it and habituate oneself to it every day so that an immutable mind can become the ordinary thing. This is an essential point of strategy. It is in relation to this mind that I write about war and individual combat in the scroll of fire. The fourth is the scroll of wind. What I write in this scroll is not about my own school, but deals with the strategies of other present-day schools. We use the expressions the ancient wind and the modern wind, and also the wind of such and such a family. I explain the strategies of the other schools and their techniques in the scroll of wind. Without knowing others, one cannot really know oneself. In the practice of all the ways and in all manners of working with things, the danger exists of deviating from the true way. Even if you practice the way daily and think you are on the right track, it is possible to deviate from the true way if your mind has turned away from it. You can recognize this if you know how to observe on the basis of the true way. If you are not progressing along the true way, a slight twist in the mind can become a major twist. This must be pondered well. In other schools, it is thought that just the way of the sword constitutes strategy, and not without reason. But what I understand by the principle and the techniques of strategy is quite different. I write about the other schools in the scroll of wind so as to acquaint you with their strategy. The fifth is the scroll of heaven, or emptiness. 
With regard to that which I mean by heaven, how could one distinguish between the depth of it and its entrance, since what we are talking about is emptiness? After having realized the principle of the way, it becomes possible to move away from it. You will find yourself naturally free in the way of strategy, and you will naturally reach a high level of ability. You will naturally find the cadence that is appropriate to the moment, and the stroke will appear all by itself and strike home by itself. All of that is the way of emptiness. I write in the scroll of heaven of the manner of entering naturally into the true way. I give my school the name School of Two Swords. I describe my school in terms of two swords, since all warriors, from the vassals to the ordinary soldier, must wear two swords firmly at their sides. Formerly, these two swords used to be called tachi and katana. Today, they are called katana and wakizashi. It goes without saying that all warriors wear these two swords in their belts. Whether they know how to use them or not, in our country, carrying the two swords is the way of the warrior. It is in order to make the advantage of carrying the two swords understood that I describe my school in terms of the two swords. The lance and the naginata are weapons to be used outside on the field of battle. In my school, a beginner learns the way by taking the large sword and the small sword in his hands at the same time. This is essential. If you are going to die in battle, it is desirable to utilize all the weapons you are carrying. It is deplorable to die with weapons left in their scabbards without having been capable of using them. But if you have a sword in each hand, it is difficult to handle each of the two swords as you wish. That is why you have to learn to wield the large sword with just one hand. It is normal to wield a large weapon like the lance or the naginata with two hands, but the large sword and the small one are weapons to be utilized with just one hand. Holding a large sword with two hands is a disadvantage when fighting on horseback, when fighting on the run, when fighting in marshy terrain, in a deep rice paddy, on stony ground, on a steep road, or when you are in the midst of a melee. When you are holding a bow, a lance, or any other weapon in your left hand, you must hold the sword with the right hand. That is why holding a sword with two hands is not appropriate in the true way. If you do not succeed in killing your enemy with just one hand, it is enough to use two hands at that point. It is not a very complicated matter. It is in order to learn to handle the large sword easily with one hand that we learn to wield the two swords. At the beginning, everyone has difficulty handling the large sword with just one hand because of its weight. It is the same thing in any form of new beginning. For a beginner, it is hard to draw a bow, and handling a naginata is also hard. Whatever the weapon, the important thing is to get used to it. In this way, you may succeed in drawing a strong bow, and by exercising every day, you will achieve the ability to wield the sword easily by acquiring the strength that is fitting for the way. The way of the sword is not a mere matter of the swiftness of the strike. 
I will explain this precisely in the second scroll, the scroll of water. The large sword is used in an open space and the small sword in a confined space. That is the starting point of the way. In my school, one must win with a long weapon as well as a short one. That is why I do not fix the length of the sword. To be ready to win with all the weapons, that is the essence of my school. The advantage of using two swords instead of one becomes manifest when one is fighting alone against many adversaries and when one is fighting in a closed-in place. It is not necessary to write more about this now. It is necessary to know ten thousand things by knowing one well. If you are to practice the way of strategy, nothing must escape your eyes. Reflect well on this. Knowing the meaning of the two ideograms, Hyo-ho. Customarily, in this way, someone who knows how to handle a sword is called a man of strategy. In the way of the martial arts, someone who knows how to shoot a bow is called an archer. Someone who knows how to shoot a gun is called a gunner. Someone who is skillful with the lance is called an expert with the lance. And someone who handles the naginata well is called an expert with the naginata. Thus, someone who excels in the technique of the sword should be called an expert with the long sword or an expert with the short sword. The bow, the gun, the lance, and the naginata are all weapons of the warrior. Each one of them is part of the way of strategy. Nevertheless, strategy is usually used to designate the art of the sword. There is a reason for this. It is through the virtue of the sword that one rules a country and that one behaves in a fitting manner oneself. The sword is at the origin of strategy. By mastering the virtue of the sword, one person can defeat ten. If one can defeat ten, a hundred can defeat a thousand, and a thousand will defeat ten thousand. It is in this sense that in my school the principles are the same for one as for ten thousand, and what I mean by strategy includes the practices of all warriors. We may speak of the way of the Confucians, of the Buddhists, of tea masters, of masters of etiquette, or of dancers, but these ways are distinct from the way of the warrior. Nonetheless, anyone who understands the way in great depth will find the same principle in all things. It is important for each person to persevere in his own way. Knowing the advantage of each weapon in strategy. If you know well the advantages of the different weapons, you can use any weapon appropriately in accordance with the situation of the moment. The small sword is advantageous in a confined place and when you get close to your opponent. The large sword is suited to nearly all situations and presents advantages in all of them. On the battlefield, the usefulness of the naginata is slightly less than that of the lance, for if you compare the two, the lance allows one to take the initiative better. 
If there are two practitioners of the same level, and one has a lance and the other a naginata, the one with the lance will have a slight advantage. The effectiveness of the lance and the naginata depends on the situation of combat. They will not be very effective in a confined space, nor when you are surrounded by enemies in a house. They are weapons especially for the battlefield, indispensable in situations of war. You can learn and develop the subtleties of technique indoors, but they will not be appropriate if you forget the true way. The bow is appropriate when you are moving troops forward or back in the strategy of battles. It makes possible rapid fire in parallel with the use of lances and other arms. It is therefore particularly useful on battlefields in open terrain. But its effectiveness is insufficient for attacking fortresses or for combating enemies who are farther than 36 meters away. At the present time, there are many flowers and little fruit in archery. This goes without saying, and goes for the other arts as well. If an art is nothing but that, it cannot be useful in a really important situation. The interest is great. From within a fortress, there is no weapon more effective than a gun. On the field of battle, also, the interest of the gun is great before an encounter. Once, however, the encounter has begun, its effectiveness diminishes. One of the advantages of the bow is that the trajectory of the arrow is visible, and the deficiency of the gun is that the ball cannot be seen. It is appropriate to examine well this aspect of things. As far as the horse is concerned, it must be strong, resilient, and without bad habits. Generally, as for all the weapons of war, you should choose horses that are large and good for marching. The swords, both the short and the long, should be large and sharp. The lance and naginata, large and well honed. You must have bows and guns that are powerful and are not easily ruined. You should not have a predilection for certain weapons. Putting too much emphasis on one weapon results in not having enough of the others. Weapons should be adapted to your personal qualities and be ones you can handle. It is useless to imitate others. For a general, as for a soldier, it is negative to have marked preferences. You should examine this point well. Cadences in Strategy Cadence is inherent in all things, especially as far as strategy is concerned. It is not possible to master cadence without thorough training. In this world, we can see that different cadences exist. The cadences of the way of the dance and of musicians with their stringed or wind instruments are all concordant and without distortion. Going through the various ways of the martial arts, there are different cadences depending on whether you are shooting a bow, firing a gun, or riding a horse. You must not go against cadence in any of the arts, nor in any handcraft. Cadence also exists for that which does not have a visible form. Regarding the situation of a warrior in the service of a lord, according to the cadences he follows, he will rise or fall in the hierarchy, for there are cadences that are concordant 
and others that are discordant. In the way of business, there are cadences for making a fortune and cadences for losing it. In each way, there exists different cadences. You must discern well the cadences in conformity with which things prosper and those in conformity with which things decline. In strategy, different cadences exist. First, it is necessary to know the concordant cadences and then to learn the discordant ones. Among the large or small and slow or fast cadences, it is indispensable for strategy to discern striking cadences, interval cadences, and opposing cadences. Your strategy cannot be sure if you do not succeed in mastering the opposing cadence. At the time of strategic combat, you must know the cadences of each enemy and utilize cadences that they will not think of. You will win by unleashing the cadences of emptiness that are born from those of wisdom. In each scroll, I will write about cadence, examining these writings and train well. If you practice diligently from morning till night the way of strategy I teach, your mind will spontaneously broaden. I am transmitting to the world my strategy in its collective and individual dimensions. I am expounding it for the first time in writing in these five scrolls of earth, water, fire, wind, and heaven. Those who would like to learn my strategy should apply the following rules in order to practice the way. 1. Think of that which is not evil. 2. Train in the way. 3. Take an interest in all the arts. 4. Know the way of all professions. 5. Know how to appreciate the advantages and disadvantages of each thing. 6. Learn to judge the quality of each thing. 7. Perceive and understand that which is not visible from the outside. 8. Be attentive even to minimal things. 9. Do not perform useless acts. You must train in the way of strategy, keeping these general principles in mind. Particularly in this way, if you do not know how to see the right things in broad perspective, you will not be able to become an accomplished practitioner of strategy. If you master this method, you will not lose even alone against 20 or 30 opponents. First of all, because you maintain your vital energy constantly in your strategy and you practice the direct way, you will win through your techniques and also through your way of seeing. Since you have free mastery of your body as a result of your training, you will win through your body. Since your mind is accustomed to this way, you will also win through your mind. Once you reach this stage, how can you be defeated? Regarding grand strategy, you must be victorious through the quality of the people you employ, victorious through the way in which you utilize a great number of people, victorious by behaving correctly yourself in accordance with the way, victorious by ruling your country, victorious in order to feed the people, 
victorious by applying the law of the world in the best way. Thus, it is necessary to know how not to lose to anyone in any of the ways and to firmly establish your position and your honor. That is the way of strategy. The twelfth of the fifth month of year two of Shoho, 1645. Shinmen Musashi, for the Honorable Lord Terao Magonojo. The fifth of the second month of year seven of Kanbun, 1667. Terao Yumeo Katsunobu, for the Honorable Lord Yamamoto Gensuke. The Scroll of Water The mind of strategy of my school of two swords takes water as its fundamental model. Therefore, I title this next text The Scroll of Water because the idea here is to practice a method of pragmatic effectiveness. For this reason, I elucidate the sword techniques of my school in this part of my writing. It is difficult in writing to explain this way in detail as I would like to do. Even where words are inadequate, you should understand the principle intuitively. It is necessary for you to pause and reflect on each of the words and ideograms I have written in this text. If you listen superficially, you run a great risk of deviating from the way. Regarding the principle of strategy, even though I may describe the situation as though talking about individual combat, it is essential to understand this with broad vision, as the principle of a battle among tens of thousands of people. You are in danger of falling into a bad way if you wander and choose the wrong path, for the slightest error in judgment can have grave consequences, especially in this way. If you content yourself with listening what I write here, it will be impossible for you to reach a high level in the way of strategy. Listen to this text thinking that it is written for you. Do not think that you are just listening or learning written things. Instead of imitating what I write, make this text yours, like a principle that you have brought forth from your own thought. It is necessary to ponder well by putting yourself into the situation. State of Mind in Strategy In the way of strategy, one's state of mind need not be distant from the ordinary one. In daily life, as well as in strategy, it is necessary to have an ample and broad mind, to carefully keep it very straight, not too tight and not at all loose. In order not to have your mind too much off to one side, it is necessary to place it in the center and move it calmly, so that it does not cease to move even in moments of change. All that has to be examined well. Even at a calm time, the mind is not calm. Even at a moment of great speed, the mind is not at all fast. The mind must not be carried along by the body, nor the body by the mind. The mind must be wary when the body remains unguarded. The mind must not be insufficient or even a little bit too much. When the surface of the mind is weak, 
its depth must be strong so that the opponent cannot perceive one's state of mind. Those who are small, either in size or in number, must know well those who are large, in size or number, and those who are large must know those who are small. The large as well as the small must keep their minds straight and not overestimate themselves. It is necessary to keep the mind pure and broad, and wisdom will find its place within this breadth. The important thing is to polish wisdom and the mind in great detail. If you sharpen wisdom, you will understand what is just and unjust in society, and also the good and the evil of this world. Then you will come to know all kinds of arts, and you will tread different ways. In this manner, no one in this world will succeed in deceiving you. It is after this stage that you will arrive at the wisdom of strategy. The wisdom of strategy is entirely distinct. Even right in the middle of a battle, where everything is in rapid movement, it is necessary to attain the most profound principle of strategy, which assures you an immovable mind. You must examine this well. Posture in Strategy Regarding posture, it is appropriate to keep the face neither lowered nor raised, nor leaning nor frowning, to keep the eyes unperturbed, the forehead without wrinkles but with creases between the brows, not to move the eyeballs and not to blink, though keeping the eyelids slightly lowered. In this way, you shape a beautiful, luminous face, keeping the nose straight and the lower jaw slightly protruding. Keep your neck straight, putting some force in the hollow of the nape. Lower your shoulders, with the sensation that the torso from the shoulders down forms a unity. Keep the back straight. Do not stick out your buttocks. Push your force downward from your knees to the tips of your toes. Advance the belly slightly forward so that the pelvis does not lose its stability. Remember the adage, squeeze from one corner which recommends pressing the scabbard of the small sword, wakizashi, firmly against the belly so that your belt does not loosen up. In sum, it is necessary for you to have as your posture for strategy just the ordinary one, and it is essential that the posture of strategy be the ordinary one for you. This must be examined well. The way of looking in strategy your look must be broad and ample. Looking and seeing are two different things. Look powerfully. See gently. It is necessary to look at what is distant as something that is close and what is close as something that is distant. This is essential for strategy. It is fundamental in strategy to know the sword of the adversary without ever looking at it. You must exercise well in this, whether it is a matter of strategy on the individual scale or strategy on the large scale, the way of looking is the same. It is essential to look to both sides without moving your eyes. But without preparation, you will not be able to achieve this way of looking at the time of combat.
That is why you had better study well what I write here. You must accustom yourself to looking all the time in this way in order to be able to keep this way of looking in any situation. Examine this well. The way of gripping the sword. You should grip the sword holding the thumb and index finger as though they were floating, the middle finger neither tight nor slack, the ring and little fingers very tight. It is bad to have an empty space inside your hand. Hold the sword with the thought of slashing your opponent. When you slash your opponent, the posture of the hand remains the same, and your hands must not tense up. It is with the sense of just slightly moving your thumb and index finger that you beat back your opponent's sword, that you receive it, strike it, or exert pressure on it. In all these cases, you should grip the sword with the thought of slashing. Whether you are training at slashing an object or in the thick of combat, the way of holding the sword remains the same. It is held with the intent of slashing your opponent. In some, it is not good to let the hand or the sword become fixed or frozen. A fixed hand is a dead hand. A hand that does not become fixed is alive. It is necessary to master this well. The way of moving the feet. To move from one place to another, you slightly raise your toes and push off your foot from the heel forcefully. According to the situation, you move your feet with a large or a small step, slowly or rapidly, but always in the manner of walking. There are three ways of moving it is necessary to avoid. Jumping, moving with a floating step, stomping heavily. The essential instruction related to moving from place to place is alternate movement of the two feet, positive foot and negative foot, which means you should not move just one foot. When you slash, when you back away, when you parry, you must always move the right and left feet alternately. You must never move only one foot. This should be examined with care. The Five Guard Positions The five guard positions are the high, middle, low, and those of the two sides, left and right. Five guards can be distinguished but all of them have as their goal to slash the opponent. There is no guard position other than those five. Whatever guard position you assume, do not think of taking a position. Instead, think of being ready to strike. The choice of a wide or narrow guard depends on your assessment of the situation. The high, middle, or low guard positions are the substantial positions, and the side positions, right and left, are circumstantial ones. Thus, when you are fighting in a place of limited height, where one of the two sides is obstructed, take the side guard position, either right or left. You choose between the right and left in accordance with the situation. Do not forget this instruction. The middle-level guard position is fundamental. In fact, the middle-level position is the original guard. Observe that as you broaden your strategy 
you will understand that the middle-level guard position corresponds to the place of the general. Four other positions come after that of the general. You must examine this well. The Pathway of the Sword Tachi no Michi Here is what I call knowing the pathway, Michi, of the sword. When you handle the sword that you carry all the time, you can handle it freely even with only two fingers if you know well the pathway, Michi, of the sword. If you are preoccupied about moving the sword fast, the pathway of the sword will be troubled and that will cause you difficulties. It is enough to move the sword appropriately and calmly. If you attempt to move the sword fast like a fan or a small knife, you will have difficulties because you are straying then from the nature, michi, of the sword. You cannot slash a man by thrashing about with your sword as though you are chopping something with a knife. If you strike downward from above, you raise the sword up again, following a pathway that naturally reflects the reaction of the force. Likewise, if you strike horizontally, afterward you bring the sword back along the horizontal, following a suitable pathway. In all cases, you must move the sword broadly and powerfully, amply extending your arms. That is the way, Michi, of the sword. If you master the five formulas of technique of my school, you will strike well, because the path, Michi, of your sword will be well stabilized. It is necessary to train well. The Series of Five Technical Forms First Technical Form Take the middle guard position and point your two swords at your opponent's face. Confront your opponent in this manner. When he launches an attack, deflect his sword to your right and pressing on it, making your attack with the point of your sword. If your opponent attacks you again, strike him from above, downward, turning the point of your sword one quarter of a circle and leave your sword in the position it has reached. If your opponent attacks once again, cut his arm starting with your sword in this low position. All of this constitutes the first form. It is not possible to understand the five forms just by listening. It is necessary to assimilate them by practicing them with your swords in hand. By making a thorough study of these five forms of the sword, you will understand the way of your own sword, and consequently you will be able to face all kinds of attacks on the part of your opponents. Know that there are no other forms apart from these five in the school of the two swords. It is necessary to train in this. Second Technical Form In the second form, you hold the two swords high and strike with a single blow at the moment your adversary launches his attack. If your blow is deflected, leave your sword in the position it has reached and strike from below upward at the moment your opponent launches another attack. Do the same if this situation repeats. This form includes different ways of directing your mind and various cadences. If you exercise in the techniques of my school, striking according to this form, you will be able to attain precise mastery of the five principles, Michi, of the sword, and you will obtain the ability to win, no matter what your way of doing it is. 
it is necessary to train in this well. Third Technical Form In the guard position of the third form, you hold the sword with the point down, as though it were hanging, and you strike the wrist of the adversary from below at the moment he attacks. If the adversary parries and tries to force your sword down by striking it, you turn your sword aside with a passing cadence and cut his upper arm horizontally. The essence of this formula is to win with a single blow starting from the low guard position the instant your opponent launches his attack. In training in the way, you will encounter this low guard position, which is used when combat is fast as well as when it is slow. You must exercise in it with your swords in hand. Fourth Technical Form In the guard position of the fourth form, you hold the two swords horizontally on your left side and strike the wrist of your opponent with an upward motion at the moment he launches his attack. If he attempts to knock down your upward-moving sword, you follow your intention of striking his wrist in accordance with the way of the sword, and you extend the stroke obliquely up to the height of your own shoulder. This technique conforms to the way of the sword. If your adversary launches another attack, you will defeat him in the same manner in accordance with the way of the sword. You must examine this well. Fifth Technical Form The fifth form has to do with a guard position where you hold the swords in the right side guard position horizontally. Relating to the opponent's attack, starting from this position, low, and to the side, you strike diagonally upward and then slash directly downward from above. This form is also important for knowing the way of the sword well. If you train in handling the swords in accordance with this form, you will reach the point of being able to move the heavy swords easily. Giving more details regarding these five forms is not necessary. Above all, it is through continuously applying the techniques of these five forms in their full depth that you will learn the whole of the way of the sword of my school, master the general cadences, and perceive the qualities of the sword of your opponents. At the time of combat against opponents, you will thoroughly and fully apply these sword techniques, and you will win, in whatever way, by employing various cadences in response to the intentions of your opponent. You must learn well how to see with discernment. The Teaching of the Guard Without a Guard Here is what is called the guard without a guard, that is, not having in your mind the idea of adopting a guard position. Nevertheless, the five positions that I have mentioned can become guard positions. You will find yourself placing your sword in a variety of positions depending on the openings furnished by your opponent, and depending on the place and the situation of combat. But no matter what the situation, you must always hold the sword in such a way that you can slash well at your opponent. You hold your sword in the high position, and if in accordance with the moment you lower it a little, your guard will become that of the middle level, and then, if it becomes advantageous to raise it a little, your guard will again become the high one. In the same way, 
If, in responding to the occasion, you slightly raise your sword from the low position, that will become the middle-level guard. If you hold the sword to the right or the left, and in response to situations you move it inward, you will pass into the middle or low guard. It is in this sense that I recommend the guard without a guard. Whatever the situation is, you hold the sword so that you can slash your opponent. You parry your opponent's sword, which is coming to strike you. You touch, press against, or graze it. All that becomes the occasion for you to strike him. You should keep that clearly in mind. If you think of parrying, if you think of striking, if you think of touching, of pressing, of grazing, you run the risk of your slashing action being inadequate. The essential is to think that anything you are doing has to become the occasion for slashing. You must examine this well. As for group strategy, the placement of troops corresponds to the guard position, and what is necessary is to aim at creating an opportunity to win. Letting a situation fixate is bad. You should work this out well. A single cadence for striking your adversary. Here is what I call the single cadence strike. You are near your opponent, at a distance apart at which you can just reach each other, and you strike very rapidly and directly without moving your body, not letting your will to attack become attached anywhere, seizing the instant when he does not expect it. You strike him with a single blow just at the instant when he is not even thinking of pulling back his sword or moving it out of the guard position or attacking. After having learned this cadence well, you must train in striking rapidly with the interval cadence. The passing cadence in two phases. Here is the passing cadence in two phases. You are just about to attack and your opponent backs away or parries quickly. You feint striking him and then actually strike him at the moment when he relaxes after having started a parrying movement or after having backed up. That is the passing cadence in two phases. It is difficult to master this strike just from listening to this text, but you will understand it immediately when it is taught to you directly. The strike of non-thought. In a situation where both you and your adversary are just about to launch an attack, make your body into a body that is striking. Make your mind into a mind that is striking. Then your hand will strike spontaneously out of emptiness, with speed and power, without taking note of the starting point of the movement. This is the strike of non-thought. It is of prime importance. You will often encounter this kind of strike. You must study it and train in it well. The flowing water strike. Here is what I call the flowing water strike. You are fighting an equal battle with your opponent, and each of you is searching for an opening. In this situation, when your opponent tries in haste to back off, or to disengage his sword, or to push yours back, you expand your body and your mind. 
You strike broadly and powerfully by moving your body forward first and then your sword with a movement that is apparently quite slow, like flowing water that seems to be stagnating. By mastering this technique, you will gain ease and confidence. It is indispensable here to discern the level of your opponent. The Chance Opening Blow When you strike, your opponent tries to parry by blocking or hitting your sword. You put yourself fully and completely into the action of striking with your sword, and you strike whatever you encounter in your path, whether it is the head, the arms, or the legs of your opponent. Strike in this way, following the single way of the sword. This is the chance opening strike. If you learn this approach well, you will find an application for it at all times. You must minutely discern the details in the course of training bouts. The blow like a spark from a stone. In a situation in which your sword and your opponents are about to cross, strike extremely hard without raising your sword at all. That is the blow like a spark from a stone. To execute this technique, you must strike quickly with the three combined forces of your legs, your body, and your hands. This blow is difficult to execute if you do not exercise in it frequently. With diligent training, you will be able to increase the force of its impact. The Crimson Leaves Strike You cause your adversary's sword to drop by striking it, then you immediately bring yourself back to a readiness to strike. That's what I call the Crimson Leaves Strike. When the opponent assumes a guard position facing you, at the moment he is thinking of striking, hitting, or parrying, you strike his sword either with the strike of non-thought or with the strike like a spark from a stone. You strike with force, and if you extend the force of your strike by executing it so that the point of your sword is directed toward the ground, your opponent's sword will definitely drop. By training assiduously, you will arrive at being able to make your opponent's sword fall with ease. You must train well. The Body Replacing the Sword Instead of the body replacing the sword, I could as well say the sword replacing the body. In general, when you strike, the movements of body and sword are not simultaneously. Taking advantage of the opportunities created by your opponent's strikes, first you put your body in striking position, and your sword will strike without taking your body into account. It can also happen that you strike solely with the movement of the sword without moving your body. But generally, first you put your body in a striking position, and the sword will strike afterward. As you learn the strikes, you must examine this well. The strike and the hit. A strike and a hit are two different things. Striking is striking consciously, deliberately, whatever the manner of the strike. The hit is like a chance encounter, and even if it is strong enough so that your opponent dies from it at once, it is a hit. Whereas a strike is carried out with awareness, this must be examined. 
A hit might get to the adversary's arm or leg, but this hit must be followed by a potent strike. A hit means having the sensation of touching by chance. As you learn this, the difference becomes obvious. Work this out well. The Autumn Monkey's Body The Autumn Monkey's Body expresses a combat posture in which you do not use your hands. In getting in close to your opponent, do not think of using your hands. Think of quickly getting your body in close before striking your opponent. If you think of reaching out with your hands, your body will inevitably remain distant. That is why you must think of getting your whole body in close quickly. When you are at a distance at which you exchange sword blows, it is easy to get in close to your opponent. You must examine this well. The Body of Lacquer and Paste By speaking of lacquer and paste, I teach getting very close to your opponent and staying stuck to him. When you get in very close to your adversary, behave as though you were strongly glued to him with your head, your body, and your feet. In general, fighters have a tendency to put their heads and feet forward, but the body often hangs back. You must try to paste your body against your opponents without leaving any place where your bodies are not touching. You must examine this well. Comparing Heights Here is what I call comparing heights. When you get in close to your opponent, whatever the circumstances, penetrate forcefully and avoid shrinking. As though you are comparing heights, stretch the limbs, the pelvis, and also the neck. Set your face over against that of your adversary and enlarge yourself, as though to defeat him in a comparison of heights. It is important to move forward forcefully with this attitude. Work this out well. Making your movements stick In a situation where you and your opponent are both striking with your swords, when your opponent parries your attack, you stick your sword to his and get in close to him while maintaining the stick quality. This stickiness should produce the sensation that your swords are difficult to separate, and you must get in close without having too much of a feeling of forcing. When you stick your sword to your opponents and maintain this adhesion, it is possible for you to get in close to him with complete confidence. There is a difference between sticking and getting tangled up. Sticking is powerful. Getting tangled up is weak. These should be distinguished. Banging into your opponent. At the moment of coming in close to your opponent, you bang into him. You tilt your face slightly to the side, stick out your left shoulder, and bang into his chest. In banging into him, you fill your entire body with force, and you strike with a cadence of concordance with the breath and with a sensation of rebounding. By mastering this technique, you can strike so violently that your opponent will be knocked back a distance of two or three ken. Your impact can be such that your opponent dies of it. You should train well. The Three Parries 
Here are what I call the three parries. When you come in close to your opponent, if he strikes at you, you parry his sword with a movement as of stabbing his eye with your large sword, thus deflecting his sword over your right shoulder. Here is what I call the stabbing parry. You parry the sword of your adversary, who is attacking you, as though you were going to stab his right eye, with the sensation that you are going to slit his throat with the continuation of this movement. Finally, at the moment when your opponent attacks, you parry with your short sword as you come in close to him, doing this as though you were going to punch him in the face with your left fist and without giving any thought to the length of the blade of the sword you are holding. For this third parry, you should think that you are delivering a punch with your left hand. You should train in these well. Piercing the Face Here is what I call piercing the face. In the course of combat, the two combatants are face to face, separated by a certain distance, each holding his sword pointing toward his opponent. At this time, it is essential to think constantly of piercing the face of your opponent with the point of your sword. By applying your mind to piercing the face of your opponent in this way, his face and body will be pushed back. After having repulsed the adversary in this manner, different opportunities to defeat him will present themselves. You must work this out well. During the combat... If you succeed in pushing back the body of your opponent, you will always have won. That is why you must never forget what I call piercing the face. You must acquire this approach in the course of your training and strategy. Piercing the heart Here is what I call piercing the heart. When the place of combat is tight with regard to height and breadth, and you have difficulty in executing slashing movements, stab your opponent. Elude his strike with the sensation of directly showing him the back of your sword. Then bring the point of your sword back into a straight line, and from this position, stab him in the chest. You should apply this technique when you are tired, or when your sword is not cutting well anymore. You must understand this well. Katsutotsu here is what I call katsutotsu. When you attack, driving your opponent back, or when he tries to riposte in response to your attack, you lift your sword from below upward as though to stab him. Then you reverse this movement, lowering your sword in order to strike him. In all cases, you strike with a rapid cadence, katsutotsu. That is, you raise your sword and upward in order to stab, katsu and then you strike, totsu. In the course of combat, you will very often encounter this cadence. You execute katsutotsu by first raising the point of your sword as though to stab your opponent, and then lowering it immediately in order to strike him. You must train well in this cadence and examine it. The parry with the flat of the sword. Here is what I call the parry with the flat of the sword. In the course of combat, when the exchanges of attacks and defenses between adversaries become stagnant and repetitive in a cadence of totan totan, you parry an attack with the slap of your sword, which you apply to the sword of your opponent side against side, and afterward 
you strike. Do not slap too hard and do not think about parrying. The proper way to react to your opponent's attack is to slap his sword and strike him immediately as an extension of the same effort. You must take the initiative through the movement of slapping your opponent's sword and take the initiative through the strike. If you slap his sword with the right cadence, with the sensation of stretching your arm slightly, even if your opponent's strike is very strong, the point of your sword will not be knocked down. You must study this well and examine it. Conduct against many adversaries What I call conduct against many adversaries applies when you are fighting alone against many adversaries. Draw both your large and small swords and take up a guard position with them held wide apart, as though you were tossing them horizontally to both sides of you. Even if your opponents come at you from four sides, you will fight them by driving them back in a single direction. Distinguish clearly in the conduct of your opponents the order in which they are launching their attacks. You face first those who come at you first. Look all around. Strike at the same time in opposite directions with the right sword and the left sword in response to the tactics of your adversaries. It is bad to wait after having struck. Immediately resume your guard position on the two sides, and as soon as someone advances, strike him forcibly, and in this way, shake your opponents. Extending this momentum, assault those who advance each time with the intention of making them crumble. Continually make every effort to push your opponents back so they will be forced into one rank, one behind the other, like fish strung on a line. As soon as your opponents pile up one behind the other, sweep them away by slashing with force, without letting this moment escape. It is not very effective to continue to beat back opponents who form into a compact group. It is also ineffective to face off with adversaries each time they approach you, because you then place yourself in a situation of waiting. Perceive the cadences of your adversaries, recognize the moment in which they will crumble, and you will be victorious. Train from time to time with many partners and exercise in the way of driving them back. If you grasp this nuance, you will be as at ease fighting against ten or twenty opponents as against a single one. You must train well, then examine. The Principle of Combat In strategy, it is by the principle of combat that you will know victory with the sword. I do not have to write about the details. The important thing is to train well and learn how to win. This has to do with sword techniques that express the true way of strategy. The rest must be transmitted orally. The Single Strike Gain the capacity to win with certainty by keeping in your mind the single strike. It is impossible to acquire this strike without studying strategy thoroughly. It is by training in this strike that you will achieve a free mastery of strategy. This is the way of victory at will in any combat. You must exercise well. Direct Communication The mind of transmission of direct communication, 
That is what I will transmit to he who has received the true way of my school of two swords. It is essential to train well so that your body becomes strategy. The rest will be communicated orally. I have written above in this scroll the general teaching of my school of the sword. In strategy, to know how to win with the sword, it is necessary first to learn the five forms of striking in conjunction with the five guard positions. Mastering by this means the pathway, michi, of the sword. The body will be free and the mind will come alive to grasp the cadences of the way, michi. Your sword and your technique will be naturally remarkable, since your body will be able from head to toe to move with free mastery. It is in this way that you will be victorious first over one, then over two, and that you will finally be able to understand what is good and what is bad in strategy. Train by following one by one the instructions I have written down in this text, and you will progressively obtain the principle of the way, Michi, by practicing combat with different opponents. Never fail to have this attitude of mind. Go forward without hurry. Learn the essence of things through frequent experiences, taking advantage of every occasion. Fight against all kinds of people and be aware of their mind. Follow a road that is a thousand leagues long, one step at a time. Be without haste and be convinced that all these practices are the duty of a bushi. Be victorious today over what you were yesterday. Tomorrow be victorious over your clumsiness and then also over your skill. Practice in accordance with what I have written without letting your mind deviate from the way. Even if you gain victory over the most formidable of adversaries, unless it is in conformity with the principle, this victory cannot be considered part of the true way, Michi. By assimilating this principle, you will become able to conquer several tens of adversaries. Then, through the wisdom of the art of the sword, you will be able to master individual strategy and group strategy. A thousand days of training to develop, ten thousand days of training to polish. You must examine all this well. The twelfth of the fifth month of the second year, Shoho, 1645. Shinmen Musashi, for the Honorable Lord Terao Magonojo. The fifth of the second month of the seventh year of Kanbun, 1667. Terao Yumeo Katsunobu, for the Honorable Lord Yamamoto Gensuke. The Scroll of Fire I write about battle and combat in this scroll of fire, for it is through the image of fire that I think of battle in the strategy of the School of Two Swords. In this world, people are alike in having too limited a conception of strategy. Often, strategy is thought of in a small way. Some seek trivial advantages by using the ends of their fingers and an area of the wrist of five or three sung in length. They know how to be victorious in combat through movements of the forearm that they teach with a fan. 
Others teach the advantages of slight increases in speed with a shinai through developing techniques of the arms and legs, and they attribute the greatest significance to any increase in speed, as slight as it might be. I have engaged in combat many times in accordance with my strategy at the risk of my life. I have discerned the principle that makes it possible to situate oneself between life and death, and I have learned the way of the sword. I have also learned to recognize the strength and weakness of the adversary's sword, and I have understood the meaning of the edge and the back of the sword. In training to strike your adversary a mortal blow, you cannot even think of small and feeble techniques, especially if you are seeking to gain advantage in combat where armor is worn, you cannot even think about small techniques. The way of my strategy, again, is to know with certainty the principle, michi, that makes it possible to be victorious alone against five or against ten opponents when your life is at risk. Where, then, is the difference in the principle of the way between winning one against ten and winning a thousand against ten thousand? That must be examined well. However, in ordinary training, it is possible to exercise in the way with a thousand or ten thousand people. That is why, in single combat, you probe the tactics of each of your opponents. You try to be aware of the strength and weakness of their techniques. In this way, you will understand how to win against any person, thanks to the wisdom of strategy. In this fashion, you will become an accomplished practitioner of this way. Thinking, who besides me in the world is going to attain direct communication in strategy? And also, I will surely achieve this one day. Train from morning till night. When in this manner you have finished polishing, you will spontaneously acquire freedom and excellent ability, and in this way you will be able to gain access to supernatural power. This is the vital essence of the practice of the method of the art of war. Regarding the place of combat Regarding the evaluation of the place, a first teaching is to situate yourself with your back to the sun. Assume a guard position with the sun behind your back. Depending on the situation, if it is impossible to place yourself with your back to the sun, you should place yourself with the sun on your right. The same goes for light when you are fighting in a house. Place yourself with the light behind you and if not, on your right. It is preferable to place yourself without having your back right up against the wall, leaving some space on the left side and not leaving any space on the right side. At night, if your opponents are visible, you should also situate yourself with your back to the light or with the light on your right, keeping present in your mind your guard position as in the previous situations. You should try to situate yourself on higher ground, however slightly. This is what is called looking at your opponents from above. If you are in a house, consider the rear of it as the high place. In the course of combat, you should try to direct your opponents toward your left side and drive them back in such a way that they have their backs to the difficult place. In any case, it is important to drive your opponents toward a difficult place. Drive them back without relenting, so that they will not have a chance to turn their heads to recognize the difficulty of the place. When fighting in a house, 
drive them back in the same way without allowing them to turn their heads so that they cannot recognize that they are getting close to the threshold, the lintel, the sliding door, the porch, or a pillar. In all cases, you should force them in the direction where the terrain is bad, where there are obstacles. Taking the advantages and disadvantages of the location clearly into account, you must try to win first through your grasp of the site. You should examine this all well and train. The Three Ways of Taking the Initiative Seng. In combat, there are three ways of taking the initiative. Seng. The first consists in attacking before your opponent. I call this attacking before your opponent. Ken no seng. The second consists in taking the initiative when your opponent attacks first. I call it taking initiative at the time of an attack. Tai no seng. The third consists in taking the initiative when the two adversaries are getting ready to attack each other. I call it the initiative at the time of a reciprocal attack. Tai tai no seng. These are the three ways of taking the initiative. Whatever the form of combat, there does not exist any other way of taking the initiative once the fighting has started apart from these three. Taking the initiative is essential for strategy, since it is through this that a quick win in combat will be determined. There are details to be mastered in relation to taking the initiative, but it is pointless to describe them because it is a matter of winning through the wisdom of your own strategy by discerning the intentions of your opponent and choosing the way of taking the initiative that is appropriate to each moment. First, attack before your opponent does. Ken no sen. When you want to attack, you remain calm at the beginning. Then you take the initiative of attacking all of a sudden. Take the initiative with a state of mind that remains calm in its depth while being strong and fast on the surface. Maintain a mental disposition that is very strong. Move your feet somewhat more quickly than usual. And as soon as you near your opponent, take the initiative by acting very fast. All through the combat, preserve an untroubled mind with the sole idea of crushing your opponent. In this way, you will gain a victory with a mind that is strong to its depth. All these examples are ways of taking the initiative by attacking before your opponent does. Second, taking the initiative at the time of an attack, tai no sen. When your opponent attacks you, pretend to be weak and remain without a reaction. At the moment when he approaches, make a broad and vigorous move back, then, with a leap, feint an attack, and the instant he relaxes, strike him, straight on and with force. Take the initiative to win in this way. When the adversary attacks you, oppose him with the greatest vigor. He will modify the hyoshi of his attack, take control of him in this moment of change, and defeat him. Such is the principle of taking the initiative at the time of an attack. Third, taking the initiative at the time of a reciprocal attack, tai tai no sen. When your opponent attacks fast, face him calmly and powerfully. Then, at the moment he gets near you, pretend suddenly to abandon your riposte. From this, 
The instant your opponent relaxes in anticipation of an illusory victory, you gain the victory by striking directly. Against an opponent who attacks you calmly, attack in a lively manner, rather quickly. Approach him and exchange a series of sword blows. Following his reactions, you will defeat him with strength. These are two ways of taking the initiative at the time of a reciprocal attack, Tai Tai no Sen. It is not possible to give the details in writing. You must find out for yourself, along with listening to this text. You will be able to execute these three ways of taking the initiative by adapting to the evolution of the situation and applying the principles. Although you may not necessarily be able to attack first, it is preferable to try to force your opponent to move through your initiative. In any case, in order to be able to take the initiative, train your mind well to strive toward a flawless victory by employing the wisdom of strategy. Holding down on the headrest. What I want to express by holding down on the headrest is a way of conducting yourself in combat in which you do not allow your opponent to raise his head. In the combat of strategy, it is harmful to allow yourself to be led by your opponent and to place yourself on the defensive. It is necessary at all costs to work to lead your opponent in accordance with your will. However, if you are thinking that, your opponent is thinking that also. It is therefore impossible to lead him in a way that is favorable for you unless you are able to foresee his actions. You block a strike, you parry the sword that is coming to stab you, or you get loose when your opponent is holding you. You are then behind your opponent in strategy. What I mean to say by holding down on the headrest is different. If you are fighting as one having arrived at the true way, Michi, you can perceive the will of your opponent before he makes a move. If he intends to strike, you grasp the first letters of strike, stri and you do not allow him to complete his striking movement. That is the sense of holding down on the headrest. For example, when your opponent means to attack, you grasp the letters at in attack. Then he means to jump, you take hold of the j in jump. When he means to slash, you seize the sa in slash. All these have the same sense. In the course of combat, you allow him to do useless things while preventing him from doing anything effective. This is essential in strategy. However, working to prevent each movement your opponent tries to make is following his initiative. The essential is for you to exercise in all the techniques following the way correctly, and in this manner you will come to the point where you can foresee the will of your opponent and prevent him from actualizing it by rendering all of his movements ineffective. Dominating your opponent in this manner proves that you are a true adept who has spent long years in training. You should examine well what I mean by holding down on the headrest. Getting over a critical passage Here is what I call getting over a critical passage. I will take the example of navigation at sea. In certain straits, the currents are fast, and a distance of 40 or 50 leagues constitutes a critical passage. Also, in traversing life, a person encounters numerous critical passages. 
in navigating at sea, it is necessary to know the dangerous places, the position of the ship, and the weather. Without having a pilot ship, it is necessary to know how to adapt to each situation. The wind might blow from the side or from behind, or even change. You must have the determination to row for a distance of two or three leagues in order to reach port. That is the way you can get over a critical passage in a ship at sea. The way of being also applies to traversing life. You must get over a critical passage with the idea that this event is unique. It is important during a combat of strategy also to get over critical passages. You get over them by precisely evaluating the strength of your opponent and your own capacity. The principle of this is the same as for a good captain who is navigating a passage at sea. Once the critical place has been passed, the mind becomes calm. If you get past the critical point, your opponent will come out of it weakened, and you will begin to take the initiative. You have then practically already won. In group strategy and in individual strategy, it is essential to be determined to get over the critical passage. You should examine this well. Realizing the Situation Here is what I call realizing the situation. In group strategy, it is necessary to recognize the moments when your opponents are at a high point and when they are at a low point, to know their numbers and their intentions, to take into account the conditions of the place, and to discern their situation clearly. You must be able to deduce from these things a way to direct your forces applying the principle of strategy, which will lead with certainty to victory and to fight knowing how to take the initiative. In individual strategy, you must have knowledge concerning your opponent's school, discern his personality, and find his strength and his weakness. Use tactics that thwart his intentions, and it is important to seize the initiative of attack by perceiving the rises and falls of your opponent's combativeness and by knowing well the cadences of his intervals. If the strength of your wisdom is sufficient, you can always perceive what the situation is. If your body moves freely in the realm of strategy, if you accurately probe the mind of your adversary, you will find many ways of winning. You must work this out. Crushing the sword with your foot Crushing the sword with your foot is an expression that is unique to strategy. In group strategy, the adversaries first shoot with bows and guns or attack in some other way. If you make your assault after the bow and gun volleys, it is difficult to succeed in penetrating by force because they have time to draw their bows again and to refill their guns with powder. That is why it is necessary to make a rapid assault while your adversaries are shooting their bows or firing their guns. As soon as the enemy acts, break their actions by reacting in accordance with principle. Thus, you will obtain victory. In individual strategy, if you strike by responding after each of your opponent's attacks, the combat will stagnate and become a repetition of the same cadences. If you think of crushing your opponent's sword under your foot, you will vanquish him the instant of his first attack so as to take away his chance of acting a second time. 
You do not crush only with your foot. You must also know how to crush with your body, with your mind, and also, of course, with your sword, in order to interdict any second move by your adversary. It is in this way that you can take the initiative, seng, in each situation. You act at the same time as your opponent, not in such a way as to collide with him, but so as to pursue him after the encounter. You must examine this well. Recognizing the Instant of Collapse For each thing, there exists an instant in which it collapses. A house, a person, an adversary, collapses over the course of time following discordances in cadence. In group strategy, once you have grasped the cadence of collapsing of your adversaries, it is essential to place them under attack without leaving them a single instant's interval. If you let them have a breather when they are about to collapse, you will give them a chance to recoup their forces. In individual strategy, it may happen that during the combat, your opponent begins to collapse as a result of discordance and cadence. But if you slack off at this moment, you will give him an opportunity to re-establish himself, and you will lose a chance to defeat him. At the moment your opponent fails to collapse, persist in pushing him back by means of firm attacks so that he has no further chance of raising his head. Drive him back with a direct and powerful mind and strike him in a way that makes the blow carry a long way so that he will not be able to recover. You must understand well this strike that causes the blow to carry a long way. If you do not put some distance between you and your opponent, this strike is difficult to execute. This must be worked out. Becoming your opponent Here is what I call becoming your opponent. This is the thinking you do when you put yourself in his place. In life, there exists a tendency to overestimate the power of the adversary. Take, for example, a robber who, not having succeeded in fleeing, locks himself up in a house. If you put yourself in his place, surrounded with all society as his enemy, you are desperately upset. Someone who locks himself up this way is a pheasant, and the person coming in to kill him is a falcon. You should think all that over well. In group strategy, there also exists a tendency to overestimate the strength of your adversaries and to assume too prudent an attitude. You do not have to be afraid if you have a sufficient number of soldiers, if you know the principle of strategy, and if you know how to create an opportunity to win. In individual strategy also, you must think on the basis of putting yourself in your opponent's place. Having to face an adept of Hyoho who has perfectly mastered the principle and the techniques, he will consider himself to have lost in advance. You should examine this well. Undoing Four Hands Here is what I call undoing four hands. If you and your opponent are both doing the same thing, pushing one another back, the combat will not unfold to your advantage. As soon as you feel that you are being drawn into restraining your opponent by making an effort similar to his, drop what you are doing and seek to win by another means. In group strategy, if you fight with the approach of the fight of four hands, 
and you will not be able to come to a favorable result, and you will lose troops. It is important to drop this approach quickly and to win through means that your adversaries have not thought of. In individual strategy, as soon as you feel that you are fighting in the manner of four hands, change your attitude. You must win by employing a radically different means, recognizing clearly the state of your opponent. You must understand this well. Moving your shadow. Here is what I call moving your shadow. This is to be applied when you are unable to discern what is in the mind of your opponent. In group strategy, when the state of your adversaries is unfathomable, pretend to attack forcefully and you will discover their tactic. Once you have discovered their tactic, it will be easy to defeat them through the use of an effective means adapted to it. In individual strategy, when your opponent takes up a guard position with his sword held back or to one side, feint an attack and his mind will then be reflected in the movement of his sword. Having unveiled his state of mind, you will employ an effective means against him and you will surely win. But if, in doing this, you let yourself relax, you will lose the appropriate cadence. Examine this well. Constricting the shadow. Here is what I call constricting the shadow when you see that your adversary intends to act. In group strategy, you constrict the instant your adversaries are about to launch their action. If you show forcefully that you are constricting the effective means used by your adversaries, they will change their tactic because they will be constricted by your strength. At this moment, you change your own tactic and gain the victory by taking the initiative of attack with an empty, cool mind. In individual strategy, at the moment your opponent is about to attack you with a strong will, you get him to give up his action by using an effective cadence. During the cadence of his retreat, you find an effective means to defeat him, and you take the initiative of attacking. You must work this out well. Infecting. Here is what I call infecting. This exists in everything. Sleep is infectious. Yawns are infectious. And this goes for time, too. In group strategy, when you perceive in your adversaries a quality of indecision and haste, pretend not to notice it and act extremely slowly. That will influence your adversaries and they will relax their attitude. When you judge that you have infected them sufficiently, seize this opportunity to win by attacking fast and strong with an empty, cool mind. In individual strategy, it is important to win by attacking powerfully and fast in order to grasp the initiative by seizing the moment in which your opponent has relaxed because he has been infected by the relaxed quality of your body and your mind. You can also intoxicate your opponent by a similar process. Here you introduce dreariness, indecision, and weakness into his mind. You should work this out well. Irritating your adversary One can become irritated in different ways. For example, as a result of the feeling of brushing the limits of danger, of facing the impossible, or of surprise. You should examine this well. In group strategy, it is important to know how to irritate your adversaries. 
launching a violent assault at a place your adversaries have not thought of, before their minds have a chance to stabilize. Take the initiative of attack, making the best of this advantage. To win in this way is essential. In individual strategy, also, show yourself as slow to begin with, then attack abruptly with force, and following the ups and downs of your opponent's concentration and movements, take advantage of this opportunity to defeat him without slacking off even to the slightest extent. This is essential. You should examine it well. Frightening Anything can frighten. One allows oneself to be frightened by what one does not expect. In group strategy, you can frighten your adversaries not only by a direct action, but also sometimes by making noises, sometimes by making a small thing look large, sometimes by making sudden attacking movements off to the sides. You should gain victory by relying on the advantage offered to you by the cadence of your adversary's fright. In individual strategy, you can frighten with your body, with your sword, and also with your voice. It is essential to win directly by taking advantage of the opportunity that arises at the moment when your opponent is frightened by acts that he will not have imagined. You should examine this well. Coating Here is what I call coating. When your adversary approaches you and you clash with him forcefully and then the development of the combat stagnates, coat your adversary as though you constituted but one single body. Try to find a chance to win in this melee. In group strategy and also individual, when the combat stagnates because the two opponents are clashing equally, coat your opponent in such a way that it is impossible to distinguish yourself from the other. In this situation, seize the opportunity to win and gain the victory with power. Examine this well. Hitting a corner Here is what I call hitting a corner. You cannot always cut something down directly, especially if it is powerful. In group strategy, first you must look at the number of enemies and create an opening by beginning attacking at the point where the enemy force forms a protrusion. If a corner is weakened, the whole will be influenced by this and weaken. While one corner is deteriorating, it is important again to find other corners where you can apply the same tactic in order to win the victory. In individual strategy, if you wound a corner of your opponent's body, this will weaken him, however slightly, and he will begin to crumble. It is then easy to win. You should examine this well in order to master the principle of winning. Troubling here is what I call troubling. It is preventing the adversary from having a confident mind. In group strategy, probe the mind of your adversaries on the field of battle. Trouble them with the skillfulness of your strategy. Draw them here and there, making them think this and that. Make them sometimes think slowly and sometimes think fast. Make the most of the cadence of their troubled state to defeat them with certainty. In individual strategy, vary your techniques according to the moment. Faint striking, stabbing, getting in close. Grasp the manner in which your opponent's mind is becoming troubled 
and win with ease. This is essential for combat. You must examine it well. The Three Types of Cries The three types of cries, those for the beginning, middle, and end of a combat, are distinct. Depending on the situation, it may be important to sound a cry. Cries come from a surge of energy. People cry out at the time of a fire. In the course of a storm where there is wind and waves, you can tell someone's force from their cry. In group strategy, at the beginning of a battle, it is necessary to cry out as loudly as possible, beyond what could be imagined. During the confrontations, it is appropriate to cry out in a low tone that comes from the bottom of the belly, and after having won, you should make great, powerful cries. In individual strategy, cry out, Eight! while pretending to attack in order to cause your opponent to make a move, and strike with your sword after this cry. Sound a cry also after having won in order to declare your victory. These two cries are called cries of before and after. Do not sound a great cry at the same time as you strike with your sword. If you cry out during combat, the cries should fit in with your cadence and be low ones. You should examine this well. Concealing yourself Here is what I call concealing yourself. When two large groups oppose each other in battle, if your adversaries are powerful, conceal yourself by attacking first in one direction, then, as soon as you find your adversaries beginning to crumble, leave them as they are and redirect your attack toward other powerful groups. Move more or less as though you were zigzagging down a slope. This strategy is important when you are fighting alone against many opponents. Do not try very hard to win on each side, but as soon as you have made one side fall back, attack on another side where your opponent is strong. Perceiving the cadence of your adversaries, move with the cadence that suits you, from left to right, as though you were zigzagging down a slope, while following the reaction of your opponents. When, after having discerned the force of your opponents, you go in among them to strike them, you must not in any way have the slightest notion of backing off, and you will obtain the opportunity of winning with strength. This strategy can also be applied when you are facing a single powerful adversary in order to get close to him. To conceal yourself, you must not have in your mind the least thought of backing away. You must understand clearly what is meant by going forward while concealing yourself. Smashing Here's what I call smashing. For example, it is important to have in mind to smash the adversary, determinedly considering him to be weak while viewing yourself as strong. In group strategy, if the adversaries are few in number, or even if they are many, they are in a state of weakness when they are moving about indecisively in a disoriented condition. Smash them, starting with the head, adding to this an oppressive burst of energy that has the sensation of pushing them and smashing them. If you do not smash them enough, it is possible they may regain their strength. So smash them as though you held them in your hands. You must understand this well. 
In individual strategy, when you are fighting against an inferior opponent, or when your opponent backs away as the result of a discord in his cadence, it is important not to give him a moment to breathe and, without meeting his glance, to continue straight on and smash him completely. It is of vital importance not to give him the least opportunity to recover, however slightly. You should examine this well. Change from the mountain to the sea. Here is what I call the mind of the mountain and the sea. It is harmful to do the same thing several times in the course of combat. You can do the same thing twice, but not three times. If you fail with a technique, you can begin it over again once more, but if you do not succeed this time, abruptly apply another, completely different technique. In this way, if your opponent is thinking of the mountain, you apply the sea. If he is thinking of the sea, you apply the mountain. Such is the way of strategy. You must examine this well. Ripping out the bottom Here is what I call ripping out the bottom. When you fight against an opponent, it might happen that you get the impression of having won on account of the advantage of the way, but it could be that the mind of your adversary has not been broken and that his defeat has been superficial, while in its depth his mind has not been defeated. In this case, abruptly renew your mind and batter him until his mind has been broken and he feels completely defeated. It is essential to ascertain this. You rip out the bottom of his resistance with your sword, with your body, and also with your mind. It is not appropriate to think of this in just one way. It is when he has collapsed from the very bottom that you no longer need to maintain your vigilance. Otherwise, you must maintain it. But as long as in its depth he maintains his mind, it is difficult to bring him to collapse. In group and individual strategy, you should train well in order to learn how to rip out the bottom. Renewing yourself Here is what I call renewing yourself. If at the time of a combat you feel yourself entangled with your opponent and the fight is stagnating, you throw off your preceding sensations and renew your thoughts as though you were doing everything for the first time. In this way, you employ a new cadence to achieve victory. As soon as you feel a grating indecisiveness in your contact with your opponent, immediately renew your mind so you can make use of a completely different opening in order to win. In group strategy as well, it is important to know how to renew yourself. This is something you will find immediately through the wisdom of strategy. You should examine it well. A mouse's head and a bull's neck. Here is what I call a mouse's head and a bull's neck. In the course of a combat, it sometimes happens that the two combatants become entangled because both of them have gotten hung up on details. In this situation, you should always keep in mind that the way of strategy is like a mouse's head and a bull's neck. And while you are fighting with small techniques, all of a sudden, enlarge your mind and transform those small techniques into big ones. This is an integral part of strategic thought. 
It is important for a warrior to think every day that a person's mind is like a mouse's head and a bull's neck. For group and individual strategies, it is necessary always to have this way of thinking present. You should examine all this well. The general knows his soldiers. Here is what I call the general knows his soldiers. This is applicable in all battles. If you practice this method unremittingly, and if you succeed in realizing the way as you understand it, you will obtain the power of the knowledge of strategy. You will then be able to consider all your opponents as your own soldiers, with whom you can have done whatever you like. You will have the sense of directing your opponents according to your will. You are then the general, and your adversaries are your soldiers. You must work this out well. Letting go of the sword handle What I call letting go of the sword handle has several senses. It is the state of mind of winning without having a sword, and also the state of mind of not winning with the sword. I shall not write down all the ways of conducting oneself that flow from this mind. You should train well. The body of a rock. Here is what I call the body of a rock. He who has mastered the way of strategy can immediately become like a rock. At that point, he will never receive a sword blow and nothing will be able to move him. The details will be given orally. I have written in the foregoing what I think uninterruptedly in the practice of the sword of my school. This is the first time I have written on this principle. There are, therefore, confusions in the organization of the sentences, and I have not been able to express myself down to small details. Nonetheless, this text will serve to guide the mind of those who study this way. I have devoted myself to the way of strategy since my youth. I have exhausted the knowledge of the hand and body and all the techniques of the sword, and my thought has passed through several stages. I have visited a variety of schools, and I have seen in some of them skillful explanations being given, and in others subtle techniques of the hand being shown. They have a nice appearance, but none of them manifests a correct mind. I think it is possible to develop a certain skill of body and a certain finesse of mind by learning these techniques, but all this training becomes, for the way, a source of fault. These persist without ever disappearing, and because of them, the correct way of strategy fades away, and the way is lost. For mastering the true way of the sword and for defeating your adversary in combat, the principle is in no way different. If you obtain the power of the knowledge of my strategy, and if you act correctly, there will be no doubt of your victory. The twelfth of the fifth month of the second year of Shōhō, 1645, Shinmen Musashi, to the Honorable Lord Terao Magonojō. The fifth of the second month of the seventh year of Kanbun, 1667, Terao Musei Katsunobu, to the Honorable Lord Yamamoto Gennosuke. The Scroll of Wind Knowing the Way of Strategy of Other Schools
I write the scroll of wind on the subject of the other schools of strategy in order, in this scroll, to explain what they are. You cannot know with certainty the way of your own school without knowing the way of others. I have visited and observed other schools of strategy. In one school, they use a large sword of great length and merely seek for power in their technique. In another school, the way is practiced with a small sword called a kodachi. Another school has elaborated many varied techniques. There, the way is transmitted with different guard positions for the sword, and they distinguish between surface training and depth training. In this scroll, I write the reasons why all these trends are not the true way, and I explain their advantages and disadvantages. The principle of my school is quite different. In the other schools, techniques are displayed like merchandise adorned with colors and flowers so they can be turned into a way of making a living, which is not the true way. The strategies propagated in this world are limited to the single small domain of the art of the sword, and it is thought that to win it is enough solely to acquire techniques by training in handling the sword and in movements of the body. Neither of these two ways is a sure one. I explain here what is lacking in the other schools. It is necessary to thoroughly examine all of this together as a whole in order to understand the advantage of my school of two swords. Schools that use a particularly long, large sword. There are schools that prefer a particularly long, large sword. From the point of view of my strategy, these are weak schools. For their preference for the long, large sword comes from the idea of trying to win by placing oneself far from the sword of your opponent. They think that this is the advantage of a long sword. This attitude comes from a misunderstanding of the principle that consists in defeating the adversary no matter what the situation is. People say that the longer one's limbs are, the better it is. But this idea comes from those who are ignorant concerning strategy. Instead of relying on the principle of strategy, they try to win by means of length and situating themselves far away from their opponent. This approach comes from mental weakness. It is in this sense that I consider their strategies to be weak. If you fight from a short distance away, at a distance from which you might well be able to close in to a hand-to-hand -hand range, the longer your sword is, the less well you are able to strike, the less well you are able to swing it around, and a long sword becomes a weight on you. Someone who has a small sword, or even someone who has nothing in his hands, can have the advantage in this sort of situation. Those who prefer a long sword may be able to justify their choice, but their reasoning is valid only for themselves. If you look from the point of view of the true way of this world, there is no reason for that. How can you say that with a small sword you will inevitably lose against someone with a big sword? When you fight in a space that is tight in width or height, or when you are in a house where it is permitted to carry only a small sword, Preference for a large sword has bad consequences, because this preference comes from uncertainty about your own strategy. In addition, some people do not have the main force to handle a large sword.
As a proverb has it, something large can replace something small. So I do not unconditionally reject length, but rather it is the prejudice in favor of length that I repudiate. In group strategy, the large sword corresponds to a large number of troops and the small sword to a small number. Is it possible for a small number to fight a large number? We know of several examples where a smaller force has carried off the victory. In my school, I reject this sort of narrow, preconceived outlook. You should examine this well. Schools that use the sword with brute force It is not appropriate to set up a distinction between a strong sword and a weak sword. If you strike with the intention of producing force, your sword technique will be crude, and it is difficult to achieve victory with crude technique. If you try hard to cut through a human body using force, you will not succeed. If you try to cut through various objects, you will see that it is bad to strike with force. In fighting a mortal enemy, no one would think of cutting him down weakly or strongly. When you want to kill someone, you do not do it strongly, and of course not weakly, but simply in such a way that he dies. In practicing the sword with brute force, if you slap the other's sword forcefully in making a parry, the force will spill over, and that is always bad. If you hit the other's sword with a great deal of force, your sword might break in two. Thus, it makes no sense to advocate using the sword with brute force. In group strategy, if you try to win in a battle through sheer power, with strength in troops, then your opponents will also try to have strength in troops, and they will want to fight with brute force. The two sides will thus be thinking the same way. It is impossible to win in any domain without the principle of the way. In the way of my school, you must never consider the impossible, and you must learn to win in all ways thanks to the power of the knowledge of my strategy. You must work this out well. Schools that use the short sword Trying to win with only the short sword is not the true way. From ancient times, the large and the small sword have been talked about. This clearly expresses the usefulness of having a long and a short one. In this world, a strong person can easily handle a large sword. There's no point in limiting him to a short sword. When you need a long weapon, you can even take a lance or a naginata. With a small sword, trying to look for a fault in your opponent's attack in order to cut him down, trying to penetrate in close by leaping, or making an attempt to catch hold of the body of your opponent, all these approaches are partial and no good. Looking for a fault as the opening for your attack amounts to submitting to the initiative of the other and should be avoided because you run the risk of becoming entangled with him. When facing many opponents, if you have a short weapon in your hand, the idea of getting close enough to them to fight hand-to-hand -hand or to catch hold of them is ineffective. If you are particularly trained in the use of the short sword, even when you want to drive back many adversaries by slashing at them or when you want to leap about freely or spin energetically, all of your sword technique becomes defensive and you have a tendency to fall into confusion. Therefore, this is not a sure way. To the extent to which it is possible, 
you must repulse your opponents by getting them to jump about and become disconcerted, while you yourself keep straight with power in order to obtain the victory with certainty. This is the way. The principle is the same for group strategy. To the extent to which it is possible, the essence of strategy is to crush your enemies immediately through the power of great numbers by driving them back all of a sudden. In this world, if you continually accustom yourself in the course of your apprenticeship to certain techniques of parrying, dodging, disengaging, and warding off an attack, your mind will be steered by these ways of doing things, Michi, and you will run the risk of letting yourself be controlled by others. Since the way of strategy is straight and true, it is important to dominate your adversary by harrying him with the true principle. You should examine this well. Schools that have a large number of techniques Teaching people a large number of sword techniques is turning the way into a business of selling goods, making beginners believe that there is something profound in their training by impressing them with a variety of techniques. This attitude toward strategy must be avoided, because thinking that there is a variety of ways of cutting a man down is evidence of a disturbed mind. In the world, different ways of cutting a man down do not exist. Whether you are an accomplished adept or a non-initiate, a woman or a child, the ways, Michi, of striking, slapping, and cutting are not all that numerous. Apart from these movements, there are only those of stabbing and slashing broadly on the horizontal. Because what is primarily at issue is the way, Michi, of cutting someone down, there cannot be many differences. All the same, whatever the place and situation of combat might be, for example, a place that is closed in with regard to height or width, one must hold the sword without being discomfited by the place. It is from this necessity that the five ways of holding the sword come. All five are necessary. Apart from that, it is not fitting to the true way to cut someone down by pivoting one's wrists, twisting one's body, jumping or pulling back. Because you cannot perform the act of cutting a man down by pivoting, twisting, jumping or pulling back. These are entirely futile movements. In the strategy of my school, keep your body and mind straight and make your opponent go through contortions and twist about. The essence is to defeat him in the moment when, in his mind, he is pivoting and twisting. You should examine this well. Schools that insist on the importance of the guard position in the art of the sword. It is erroneous to think that the guard position is essential in the art of the sword. In this world, it is when there is no adversary that one can establish a guard position. The reason is that, in the way of combat, there is no place for the setting up of laws, whether they relate to current custom or present-day rules. In strategy, the point is to do whatever creates a disadvantage for the adversary. What is called the guard or guard position involves having recourse to immobility. For example, to construct a fortress or establish the order of a battle, 
one must have a powerful and immovable mind, even if the enemy attacks. This is a fundamental attitude. Whereas in the way of strategic combat, it is necessary to take initiative after initiative in any situation. Now to assume a guard position is to wait upon the initiative of the other. You must work this out well. In the way of strategic combat, you shake the other's guard. You employ techniques he is not thinking of. You get him to panic, to become irritated, frightened. And you defeat him by becoming aware of the cadence in accordance with which he is getting lost in the situation of combat. In this practice, it is bad to take up a guard position, which is waiting upon the other's initiative. It is in this sense that I insist in my school on the guard without a guard. That is to say, even if there is a guard, it is not a rigid guard. In group strategy, you must be informed of the number of your adversaries and the conditions of the place and know your own numbers and the abilities of your camp. The essential is to have an idea of the potential import of these elements when you begin combat maneuvers with your troops. Between the two situations, that in which your adversary has seized the initiative of attack and that in which you have taken the initiative, the disadvantage and the advantage vary from single to double. Firmly setting up a guard position as a preparation to blocking the sword of your opponent and thoroughly beating it back amounts to moving a lance or a naginata about in such a way as to set up a barrier. If you strike your opponent, it is best for you to take the approach of pulling up a stake from the fence to use it as a lance or naginata. You should examine this well. Schools that teach particular ways of gazing. Certain schools teach particular ways of directing the gaze. This teaching varies from one school to another. You are to focus your gaze on the sword, the hand, the face, or the feet of the adversary. But to fasten the eyes in this way on a particular spot is liable to interfere with the mind and is a fault in strategy. I will explain myself by giving some examples. Someone playing ball kicks without fixing his gaze on the ball. Sometimes he kicks as he is stroking his temples, sometimes while catching up to the ball on the run, sometimes as he spins. Once accustomed to it, he has no need to maintain a fixed gaze. The same is true of an acrobat. An expert in this art is capable of juggling several swords while balancing a door over his nose. Things are seen naturally as a result of unremitting training and not on account of looking at them fixedly. In the way of strategy, by accumulating experiences with different opponents, you will learn the lightness or weight of the mind of each one. By practicing the way in this manner, you can see everything that is far away or close, and also assess the speed or slowness of the adversary's sword. Generally, in strategy, you place your gaze on the mind of your opponent. In group strategy, your gaze is directed onto the situation and the state of the enemy troops. There are two things you can do. Looking and seeing. It is necessary to look hard, to the point of perceiving the mind of your adversary and the condition of the sight. 
It is also necessary to look broadly in order to perceive the dynamic state of the battle and the strength and weakness of the moment. You must win like this, in the right way. In group strategy, and also in individual strategy, it is out of the question to fix one's gaze narrowly. As I have already said, as a result of narrow and minutely detailed vision, you will let something big escape you, and your mind will become uncertain, which will lead you to let a sure chance of winning get away from you. You should examine these reasons well, and train well. Schools that teach various kinds of footwork. There are schools that teach different ways of moving the feet so as to vary movements from place to place and make them faster. These are, for example, floating foot, leaping foot, hopping foot, stamping foot, and crow's foot. From the point of view of my strategy, all these movements have deficiencies. Floating foot is to be avoided because in situations of combat, there is always the tendency to have the sensation of floating in the feet. Therefore, one should move with firm steps. Leaping foot is not good because at the moment of leaping, there is a pushing off movement and you make a movement to dampen the impact at the moment of landing on the ground that holds the body back. There is no reason to leap several times in a row during a battle. Therefore, leaping foot is to be avoided. With hopping foot, the mind will be hopping too, and you will not be able to fight effectively. Stamping foot is particularly bad since it involves a weight. There is also crow's foot and several other ways of moving rapidly. But sword combat can take place in a variety of conditions, for example, in a marsh, in a deep rice paddy, or in the mountains on the banks of a river, in a stony field, or on a narrow path. In some places, you cannot leap or hop, and you will not be able to move rapidly either. In my strategy, the way of moving is no different from normal walking on the road. You move rapidly or calmly in accordance with your opponent's cadence. In all cases, move without the movement of your feet being disturbed, without missing a step, without any excess in your step with a suitable body posture. Movement from place to place is equally important in group strategy, for if you launch an attack without knowing the intention of your adversary, with imprudent speed, your cadence will be thrown off and it will be difficult to gain victory in these conditions. If your steps are too slow, you will not be able to find the moments when your adversaries become troubled and are on the verge of collapse. One of the elements of victory will elude you, and you will not be able to win quickly. Discern the moment when your adversaries become troubled and are foundering, and do not give them the least chance to catch their breath. Winning in this way is essential. You must train well in this. Schools that stress speed. Speed is not part of the true way of strategy. When you say fast, this means a lag has occurred in relation to the cadence of things. That is what is meant by fast or slow. In whatever the domain, the movements of a good, accomplished practitioner do not appear fast. For example, 
There are messengers who cover forty or fifty leagues at the run in a single day, but they do not run fast from morning till night. Whereas a beginner cannot cover such a long distance, even if he has the wind to run the whole day. In no theater, when a beginner sings following a good, accomplished practitioner, he has the impression of lagging behind and sings with the feeling of haste. In the same way, in the drumbeat for Old Pine, Oimatsu, which is a slow melody, a beginner has the feeling of lagging behind and having to catch up. Takasago is a rather fast song, but it is not appropriate to play the drum too fast. Speed is the beginning of a fall because it produces a deviation in the cadence. Of course, excessive slowness is also bad. The movements of a good, accomplished practitioner look slow, but there is no dead space between his movements. Whatever the domain, the movements of an expert never appear hurried. Through these examples, you should understand a principle of the way. In the way of strategy, it is bad to try for speed. I will explain. In places such as a marsh or deep rice paddy, you cannot move either your body or your legs fast. This is all the more true for the sword. You must not try to cut with speed. If you try to cut with a fast movement, the sword, which is neither a fan nor a knife, will not cut because of the speed. You must understand that well. In group strategy, also, it is bad to think of hurrying up in order to attain speed. If you possess the attitude of mind of holding down on the headrest, you will never be late. If your adversaries act too fast, you apply the opposite approach. You calm yourself and avoid imitating them. You must train yourself well in developing this state of mind. Schools that distinguish depth and surface. In questions of strategy, what is meant by surface and what is meant by depth? In the different arts, there is a manner of distinguishing the depth from the entry that refers to the ultimate teaching or the secret transmission. But as to the principle that comes into play at the time of combat with an adversary, you cannot say that you fight him with techniques of the surface and cut him down with those of the depth. In my school's teaching of strategy, you teach techniques that are easy to assimilate for those who are beginning in the study of the way, giving them an explanation that they can understand right away. Observing the degree of their advancement, you progressively give them explanations that direct them toward more and more profound principles. However, in general, you teach them things that correspond to situations they are really in. There is no need to distinguish between depth and entry in the teaching. This can be connected with the adage according to which if you continue to go deeper and deeper into the mountains, you will come out by a different entry. In all the ways, it might turn out that the depth technique is effective or that the entry technique is. With this principle of combat, why should you hide one thing in order to show another? That is why, in the transmission of my school, I do not have written oaths accompanied by penalties. Observing the student's level of intelligence, you teach him the correct way 
and help him to free himself of the five or six bad ways of strategy. You cause him to enter naturally into the true way that conforms to the principles of the warriors, so that his mind will be free from doubt. Such is the way, Michi, of teaching strategy in my school. You should train well in this. In the Scroll of Wind, I have written succinctly about the strategy of other schools in nine sections. I should have written about each of these things in greater detail, going from the entry to the depth, but I intentionally avoided mentioning the names of the schools and the names of the techniques. For in every school, the ideas and the explanations concerning such and such a way can vary from person to person in accordance with the way he understands, and every person has his way of reasoning. Thus, there are small differences in thought within a single school. That is why I mentioned neither the name nor the techniques of the schools, thinking about their development in the future. I have outlined the general characteristics of the other schools in these nine sections. If we observe things from the point of view of the way of the world, and also from that of correct human reasoning, these schools follow partial ways, because one of them is attached solely to length, another touts the advantage of the short sword, and the others are partial because of one single preoccupation, whether it is strength and weakness or coarseness and fineness. I do not need to be specific about whether I am talking about the entry or the depth of such and such a school, because everybody knows. In my school, there is neither depth nor entry for the art of the sword, and there are no fixed guard positions. The essence of strategy is solely that the mind learns virtue from it. The twelfth of the fifth month of the second year of Shoho, 1645. Shinmen Musashi, for the Honorable Lord Terao Magonojo. The fifth of the second month of the seventh year of Kambun, 1667. Terao Musei Katsunobu, for the Honorable Lord Yamamoto Gensuke. The Scroll of Heaven In this Scroll of Heaven, I elucidate the way of strategy of the School of Two Swords. The meaning of emptiness is space where there is nothing, and I also envisage emptiness as that which cannot be known. Emptiness, of course, is where there is nothing. Knowing that which does not exist while knowing that which exists, that is emptiness. In this world, some people think of emptiness in an erroneous fashion, interpreting it as not distinguishing anything. This is the product of a mind gone astray. It is not true emptiness. In addition, for the way of strategy, emptiness does not mean disregarding the law in order to practice the way of the warrior. Some also speak of emptiness as existing where they find nothing to do because of many doubts, but that is not true emptiness. The warrior must learn the way of strategy with certainty by practicing the different disciplines of the martial arts, and he should not disregard anything connected with the practice of the way of the warrior. 
He should put it into practice from morning till night, without tiring, and without letting his mind wander. He should polish his mind and his will, and sharpen the two visions, the one that consists in looking, and the one that consists in seeing. He should know that true empty space is where the clouds of uncertainty have completely dissipated. As long as you remain ignorant of the true way, even if you think you are on a sure way, and that you are doing well in accordance with Buddhist laws or in accordance with the laws of this world, you will deviate from the true way because you overestimate yourself and your way of seeing is distorted. You understand it if you see things with the direct way of the mind and take into account the great code of this world. Know this state of mind and take as fundamental that which is straight Conceive of the way with a sincere mind. Practice strategy broadly. Think on a large scale with accuracy and clarity. Think of void as the way and see the way as void. In emptiness the good exists and evil does not exist. Knowing exists. The principle exists. The way exists. And the mind is void. The twelfth of the fifth month of the second year of Shōhō, sixteen forty-five, Shinmen Musashi, for the Honorable Lord Terao Magonojo. The fifth of the second month of the seventh year of Kanbun, sixteen sixty-seven, Terao Musei Katsunobu, for the Honorable Lord Yamamoto Gensuke. The texts preceding the Godin no Shō. The Mirror of the Way of Strategy Hyo Do Kyo 1. The State of Mind of Strategy 2. The Way of Looking 3. The Way of Holding the Sword 4. About Sword Combat 5. The Way of Moving from Place to Place 6. The way of holding the body. 7. The way of cutting. 8. How to change the situation in the midst of combat. 9. Getting the other to drop his sword. 10. Yin in combat. 11. Yang in combat. 12. How to discern the other's state. 13. Delivering a blow. 14. How to take the initiative. 15. Striking while turning the point of the sword. 16. Attacking the legs. 17. Attacking the hand. 18. How to avoid the point of the adversary's sword. 19. How to pass above the adversary's sword. 20. Moving with sliding steps. 21. Discerning the real intention. 22. The two swords. 23. How to throw a shuriken. 24. Fighting against many opponents. 25. Using the jitte. 26. 
How to draw the various swords. 27. The ultimate strike. 28. The state of direct communication. Jikitsu. Miyamoto Musashi no Kami, Fujiwara Yoshitsune. The Enmei Ryu. The best adept in Japan. To Mr. Ochiae Chuemon. The auspicious day of the tenth year of the Keicho period, 1605. The Mirror of the Way of Strategy, Hyodo Kyo, is Musashi's first work. It is a work of his youth, written between the ages of 21 and 24. Two copies of it are extant today. Each is addressed to a different person and carries a different date. One of them is composed of 21 articles and the other of 28 articles. I have given a partial translation of the latter. I have translated only the article titles of this work because its content is less developed than that of the Godin no Sho, and it would seem repetitive here. The work is confined to the practice of the sword in individual combat, but the subject matter that would be developed in the Godin no Sho is present in embryonic form. I consider this text a proof that Musashi was not self-taught. It seems impossible to me that a young man of twenty-two, living in the conditions of his time, could have acquired the whole of the art of sword combat through his own experience and formulated it in such a systematic form. This text appears to me to be a proof that Musashi had received the general transmission of a school which could only have been that of his own family. This hypothesis is reinforced by the fact that in the 25th article, Musashi mentions the jitte, a weapon of which his father was a master. Thus, Musashi had already received a systematic teaching, which he tried to reproduce when he granted a certificate of transmission to his first student. 35 Instructions on Strategy Hyoho Sanju Gokajo in 1641, two years before beginning to write the Godin no Sho, Musashi wrote a work called 35 Instructions on Strategy. It was written for Lord Hosokawa, whose guest Musashi was. The Godin no Sho can be considered an elaboration of this work. If we wish to get a closer idea of Musashi's thought, it seems essential to bring together these two works, which were written some years apart. We find several articles whose subject matter is identical, but with variations in expression and also some different ideas. Comparison of the two works is useful for an in-depth reading of the Godin no Sho, because Musashi sometimes uses different words to express the same idea, which makes it possible to get a clearer impression of his meaning. However, in some cases, it is not clear whether Musashi was using a different word or whether a copyist's error has occurred. For example, jikitsu for jikido. We should not forget that Musashi's works were not intended for the public and that each of them was addressed to a specific person. This is something that should be borne in mind when comparing the two texts. For this reason, even if certain passages are repeated in both, it is not accurate to consider the Hyoho Sanju Gokajo purely as a work preparatory to the Gorin no Sho. It has an original character of its own.
The Gorin no Sho was written by Musashi for Lord Hosokawa Tadatoshi. At the end of his life, Musashi accepted the invitation of Hosokawa Tadatoshi, a lord of the south of Japan, Kyushu, to live at his court. But he was received there as his guest, not as his vassal. Lord Hosokawa practiced swordsmanship himself. In his youth, he had lived for several years in Edo, where he practiced the art of the sword of the Shogun Tokugawa school. From the principal master of this school, Yagyu Munenori, he received the transmission of the school's highest level of accomplishment. When he returned to his fief in Kyushu, he practiced the sword with a certain pride and self-confidence. When he received Musashi in his fief, he faced him himself in order to gauge his level. He was mastered in just a few seconds and immediately became aware of Musashi's exceptional ability. Hosokawa also greatly appreciated Musashi's great talent in a very broad range of activities. They were both about the same age and entered into a friendship of sorts in spite of their separation in the hierarchy. That is why Hosokawa received Musashi as a guest rather than a vassal, to take Musashi in and offer him a fixed income as he would have done for a vassal, would have been in some sense to buy him at a certain price, whereas a guest is priceless. For this reason, Hosokawa refrained from offering Musashi a position as his retainer. Quickly persuaded of Musashi's qualities as an adept of strategy and as a man, Hosokawa became his student. After a year of practicing with Musashi, Lord Hosokawa had not succeeded in grasping the essence of his school, so he asked Musashi to compose a text to guide his practice. Musashi then began to compose the Hyōhō Sanju Gokajō, which he presented to the Lord a year later. In the translation that follows below, I confine myself to giving only the titles of those articles that more or less replicate ones in the Gorin no Shō. I have translated the others and, in my commentary, situated them in relation to the Gorin no Shō. To help understand the nature of this text, it should be pointed out that in his introduction, Musashi uses a special verbal form to express his respect for Lord Hosoka. This is a nuance that is difficult to render in an English translation. I write for the first time here in your honor on my school of two swords, which is the result of many years of training. Considering that it is you I am addressing, this text is insufficient to communicate that which is difficult to say. It deals with how one must handle oneself with a sword in the strategy that you usually practice. I write below about the principal aspects of this in the way that they come to my mind. 1. Why I named my school School of Two Swords. The ideas in this article are presented again and further developed in the Scroll of Earth of the Gorin no Sho. However, after explaining why he uses two swords and indicating that it is through training that one becomes capable of handling a heavy sword with ease, Musashi adds, Among the people also, a sailor with a rudder or oars, or a farmer with a spade and a hoe, each in his way succeeds in accustoming himself to his action. You too can acquire strength through regular exercise. Nonetheless, it is appropriate for each person to choose a sword that corresponds to his strength. 2. 
the manner of understanding the way of strategy. The way is identical for group strategy and for individual strategy. I am writing here about individual strategy, but it is appropriate to look at this keeping in mind, to take an example, the image of a general. The limbs correspond to vassals, and the torso corresponds to soldiers and to the people. It is thus that one must govern the country in one's own body. In this sense, I say that the way is the same for group strategy and for that of the individual. To practice strategy, it is necessary to integrate the whole of one's body without having any imbalances. Nobody is strong and nobody is weak if he conceives of the body, from the head to the sole of the foot, as a unity in which a living mind circulates everywhere equally. 3. The Way of Holding the Sword After a brief description of the way of holding the sword, similar to that in the Gorin no Sho, the Scroll of Water, Musashi continues, Life and death exist for the sword as well as for the hand. When you adopt a guard position or parry an attack, if you forget to slash your opponent, your hand is going to forget an essential dynamic and will become fixed. That is what is called a dead hand. A living hand is one that does not become fixed in a gesture. You will then be at ease with the possibility of slashing properly, since both the sword and the hand will be adapting flexibly to successive actions. I call that living wrists. The wrist must not be slack. The elbow must not be too tense nor too bent. A sword should be held with tension in the lower part of the arm muscles and relaxation in the upper part of these muscles. You should examine this well. 4. Posture It is appropriate to hold the head neither lowered nor raised. The shoulders are neither raised nor contracted. The belly is forward but not the chest. The buttocks are not drawn in. The knees are not fixed. The body is placed in a facing position so that the shoulders appear broad. The posture of strategy should be well examined so that it also becomes one's ordinary posture. 5. Movement of the feet This section is nearly identical to the Godin no Sho, the scroll of water, the way of moving the feet. Six. The way of looking. This is almost identical to the Gorin no Sho, the scroll of water, the way of looking in strategy. 7. Sizing up the Ma. Different schools give different instructions on the way to assess the Ma, but I find that they tend to fix or rigidify your strategy. That is why I advise you not to take into consideration what you have learned before. Whatever the discipline may be, it is by repeating exercises that you arrive at the point of being able to assess the ma. In general, you should think that when your sword reaches your opponent, he can also reach you. When you want to kill an opponent, you have a tendency to forget your own body. You must reflect well on this. Let us recall that ma is not exactly distance, but is a description of the space-time of a relationship. 
Ma also refers to the action of the mind by which this spatial and temporal phenomenon is grasped. In this text, Musashi is doubtless alluding to the habits acquired by Lord Hosoka in the Yagyu-ryu. 8. Regarding State of Mind The mind should be neither solemn nor agitated, neither pensive nor fearful. It should be straight and ample. This is the state of mind that should be sought after. The will should not be heavy, but the depth of one's awareness should be. In this way, you make your mind like water that reacts appropriately to shifting situations. Whether it is a drop or an ocean with blue depths, it is water. You should examine this well. 9. Knowing the Three Levels of Strategy Someone who adopts guard positions in strategy and displays different guard positions while handling the sword, sometimes slowly, sometimes fast, practices strategy of a low level. Someone who has refinement in strategy and who appears magnificent due to the subtlety of his techniques, who is a master of the cadences and has an elegant bearing, practices at an intermediate level. The supreme strategy appears neither strong nor weak, neither slow nor fast, neither magnificent nor bad, but broad, straight, and calm. You should examine this well. In Musashi's text, the three levels, low, intermediate, and high, or supreme, are expressed by the terms ge, low, chu, intermediate, and jō, high. When these words are associated, the usual order is jō, chu, ge. This expression refers to level or quality. 10. A graduated chord measure You must always have a graduated chord measure in your mind. If you measure your opponent by adjusting the chord to him, you will be able to ascertain clearly his strength and weakness, his straightness and crookedness, where he is relaxed and where he is tense. With this measure, you must size up all aspects of your opponent, round, square, long, short, crooked, or straight. You should examine this well. A graduated chord measure, itogane. Gane is the connecting form of the word kane, which means metal ruler. The expression refers to a chord that is used as a measure. 11. The Pathway of the Sword Without knowing the pathway of the sword, you cannot handle it freely. You cannot properly slash your opponent if you put too much force into it, if you do not have a sense of the back and side of the blade, if you shake the sword around like a knife or a spoon for serving rice. You must train in hitting your opponent well, always knowing the pathway of the sword and moving it calmly, following its weight. 12. The Strike and the Hit This is almost identical to the Gorin no Sho, the Scroll of Water. 13. The Three Kinds of Sen this is almost identical to the Gorin no Sho, the Scroll of Fire. 
14. Getting past a critical passage. You often find yourself in a situation where you and your opponent can reach out and touch each other. In this situation, you strike. And if you see before finishing the strike that your opponent is in the process of avoiding your sword, get up as close as possible to him, moving your body and your feet. If you get past this critical moment, you are in no danger. For this, you must understand well what I have written concerning how to take the initiative. 15. The body replacing the sword. This idea is developed more completely in the Gorin no Sho, the scroll of water. 16. The two steps. You should move your feet in two movements, one foot then the other, in making a single strike. This is what I call the two steps. When you parry, pressing on your opponent's sword, or when you move forward or backward, you must move your feet in two steps, as though one foot were taking over from the other. If you move with a single step when making a strike, your body will be held by this movement, and it will be difficult for you to react immediately for the next movement. Ordinary walking is the basis for the two steps. You should examine that well. 17. Breaking the sword with your feet. This is almost identical to the Gorin no Sho, the scroll of fire. 18. Leaning on the shadow. Here is what I call leaning on the shadow. If you observe clearly what is happening in the body of your opponent, you can discern where his mind is excessively full and where it is absent. If you place your sword on the shadow of the place where his mind is absent, while at the same time vigilantly watching the place where it is overly full, your opponent's cadence will be disturbed, and your victory will be facilitated by this. Nonetheless, it is important never to miss a strike as a result of attaching your mind to your opponent's shadow. This must be worked out. 19. Moving your shadow this idea is more completely developed in the Gorin no Sho, the scroll of fire. 20. Disconnecting the cord. There are situations in which it seems you are attached to your opponent by a cord that is pulling you together. At this point, you disconnect the cord. You must disconnect it without delay, as much with your body as with your sword, as much with your feet as with your mind. It will be easy for you to disconnect it if you make use of that which your opponent does not have in mind. This must be worked out. 21. The teaching of the small comb. The idea of the small comb is to disentangle. You have a small comb in your mind, and you should disentangle yourself each time your opponent snags you with a thread. Snagging with a thread and pulling with a cord are similar, but pulling is strong and snagging is weaker. You should examine that well. 22. Recognizing a gap in cadence. A void in a cadence should be discerned in relation to your opponent, who could be either fast or slow. When you are fighting a slow opponent without moving your body at all and without letting him see the beginning of your sword movement, you strike him fast on the basis of the void. This is the cadence in one, ichi hyoshi, or 
Hyotsu Hyoshi. Against a fast opponent, you feint a strike with your body and with your mind. Your opponent will move and you will strike after his movement. This is the double Hyoshi for passing over the top. Koshi. Your body is ready to strike. Your mind and your sword are kept back. You strike with force starting from the void. At the instant when a gap, ma, arises in the will of your opponent. This is the strike of non thought. Munen muso. When your opponent is ready to strike or parry, you make a striking movement that is deliberately slow, breaking the movement during its trajectory, and you strike at the point where a void, ma, appears in his attention. That is the delayed cadence, okure hyoshi. You should examine that well. The term ma is used here in the sense of a gap or a void in perception. 23. Holding down on the headrest. 24. Recognizing the state of things. 25. Becoming your opponent. The ideas in the previous three articles are developed more completely in the Gorin no Sho, the Scroll of Fire. 26. Holding and letting go of one's mind. Depending on the situation and the moment, you must either hold your mind or let go of it. In general, when wielding a sword, you must launch your will but hold on to the depth of your mind. When you strike your opponent with certainty, you must let go of your mind deep down and hold your will. These two states of mind, holding and letting go, can take on different forms depending on the situation. This must be worked out well. Holding the mind and letting go of the mind in Musashi's text translate zanshin and hoshin, respectively. These terms are used in contemporary martial arts. 27. The chance opening blow. 28. Paste and lacquer. 29. Body of the autumn monkey. 30. Competition in size. The ideas in the previous four articles are developed more completely in the Gorin no Sho, the Scroll of Water. 31. The Door Teaching. Toboso. When you are glued to your opponent, take a position in which you straighten up your body and accentuate its breadth. As if you were covering the sword and the body of your opponent with your body, without leaving any gap between him and you. Then pivot, keeping your profile quite straight and making it as narrow as possible. Then deliver a powerful blow to your opponent's chest with your shoulder so as to knock him over. You must train well in this. Regarding the door teaching, Toboso no Oshie, Toboso refers to the mechanism for holding in place and closing a door that pivots on a central axis. It is composed of two pivot points situated in the middle of the door, on the floor, and above the door. 32. The General and His Troops. This is almost identical to the Gorin no Sho, the Scroll of Water, 
the general knows his soldiers. 33. The guard without a guard. This idea is developed more completely in the Gorinosho, the scroll of water, the teaching of the guard without a guard. 34. The body of a rock. The body of a rock is the state of an unmoving mind, powerful and large. Something inexhaustible that comes from the universal principle exists in the body. It is through this that the power of the mind resides in every living being. The grass and trees, which do not have a consciousness, are powerfully rooted in the earth. This mind is also found in the rain and the wind. You must examine well what is meant by the body of a rock. 35. Spotting Opportunities You must know how to spot opportunities, those that come sooner or later, the opportunity to escape or not escape. In my school, the ultimate teaching consists in spontaneous emanation of the universal energy, jikitsu. The details of this teaching are given through oral transmission. All reasons and principles come from emptiness. The meaning of this sentence is impossible to explain. Be so good as to reflect on it yourself. I have described above the principal aspects of my conception of strategy and state of mind in 35 articles. A number of sentences are inadequate, but it all has to do with what I have already explained to you. I have not written down the technical details of my school, which I teach you directly and orally. If you run across an obscure passage, be so kind as to permit me to explain it to you directly. The auspicious day of the second month of the eighteenth year of Kanrei, 1641. Shinmen Musashi Genshin. 42 Instructions on Strategy. Nowadays, few people know of the Hyoho Shiju Nikajo, and even fewer read it attentively. It is true that Musashi's thought is presented in the most comprehensive manner in the Godin no Sho, and people generally are content with reading that alone. The 42 Instructions on Strategy is a copy of the 35 Instructions on Strategy supplemented by additional articles. It was handed down by Terao Motomenosuke, one of Musashi's disciples. As I already explained, the 35 Instructions on Strategy, Hyoho Sanju Gokajo, was written at the request of Lord Hosokawa Tadatoshi. Musashi presented this work to him in 1641. Hosokawa died that same year. We might surmise that Musashi, as was the custom at the time, made a copy of his manuscript and gave it to one of his disciples before he died. In this case, Terao Motomenosuke. Terao Motomenosuke was the younger brother of Terao Magonojo, to whom Musashi bequeathed the Gorin no Sho. Musashi seems to have had great confidence in these two brothers. A few years before his death, he wrote, up to this point, I have traveled in more than 60 provinces, and I have transmitted my art to those who desired it. 
but I never met a person to whom I could pass on the transmission of my whole school. I was thinking, with regret, that my way was going to pass away with my own death until the day I met a disciple like Motomenosuke. Thanks be to heaven I had a student like him. We can imagine from this expression the confidence Musashi must have had in Terao Motomenosuke. The two texts, the 35 Instructions on Strategy and the 42 Instructions on Strategy, are composed, to a great extent, of identical articles. The second contains everything from the first, with the exception of the 14th Instruction, Getting Past a Critical Passage, and contains eight additional articles as well. Here is the translation of those eight. Making Your Movement Stick You and your opponent attack each other. At the moment when he blocks your sword, you close in on him and make your sword stick to his. You must glue your sword to his as though it were impossible to make it come unstuck, but without putting too much force into it. In making your movement stick, you can never be too calm. You must distinguish between sticking and becoming entangled. Sticking is strong. Becoming entangled is weak. Making your movement stick. Nebari o kakuru. The description here is simpler than in the article of the same name in the Godin no Sho, the scroll of water, written four years later. Regarding the place of combat. Combat against many adversaries. The previous two articles are more or less identical to those in the Godin no Sho the scroll of fire and the scroll of water, respectively. Regarding the five directions of the guard, the five articles below are grouped under the title Regarding the Five Directions of the Guard, Goho no Kamae no Shidai. The five guard positions described here are not the same as in the Gorin no Sho. 1. The middle guard position, Kanjitsu no Kamae with your blades held slightly at an angle. When your opponent is far away, you approach him just to the limit of his range of attack, holding your sword slanting downward and keeping your body straight. You situate yourself facing him and adopt a guard position as follows. You raise your arms, with your elbows neither raised nor lowered, and cross your large and small swords in a forward position and at a middle level, broadly, but without putting them too far forward. The point of the large sword is tilted slightly upward and placed above the line that runs between the middle of your body and your opponent's. The blades of your swords are neither raised nor held flat on the horizontal. They should be held on an angle. In this position, keep your will mobile and the depth of your mind stable. Avoid your opponent's attack by detecting the movement of his will. Jab the point of your sword toward his face. This will disconcert him, and on account of that, he will be drawn into launching his attack. At that point, strike his arm from top to bottom by bringing the point of your sword back into position. After striking, leave this sword at the point it has reached, as though you had abandoned it, without moving your feet. And when your opponent attacks again, strike his arm from bottom to top, in such a way as to hit him when he is a third of the way into his movement of attack. Generally speaking, it is appropriate to keep your attention on the unleashing of your opponent's will to attack. 
you can then detect what he is about to start doing. This is a situation that is encountered all the time. You must understand it well. 2. The High Guard Position of Gidan Gidan no Kamae Place your right hand at the level of your ear, slanting your large sword slightly toward the inside. This is what I call the guard position of Gidan. You hold the sword neither too tight nor too loose, with the point of the sword aimed toward the center line of your opponent's body. You strike, depending on your opponent's attack, either low, at the middle level, or high. The speed, depth, and force of your strike depend on his. To dominate your opponent from the outset, strike his wrist by moving your large sword forward. But you must not strike downward. Strike with the feeling of piercing your opponent's hand, being quite sure of the direction of the blade of your sword. Then, whether your opponent parries or not, you immediately raise your sword, striking from below upward. To carry out this technique, you must hold the sword correctly and strike swiftly. It contains a sequence in the course of which it is impossible to have a chance to cut your opponent down. But at a short distance, this technique is difficult to execute. In this case, you must try to achieve dominance after having parried. You must use your judgment. 3. The Right Side Guard Position Uchoku no Kamae Hold your large sword down on the right side and your small sword up as though you were going to make a broad, horizontal slashing movement. When your opponent attacks, you strike him in such a way as to hit him when he is a third of the way through his move. If he tries to strike your small sword so as to make you drop it, you lower it slightly to make him cut in the void. Then you slash your opponent by straightening the direction of the blade of your own sword. Speed is necessary for this strike. You must watch to make sure you keep the direction of the blade of your sword correct at the moment when you turn the point. 4. The Left Side Guard Position Juki no Kamae There are two kinds of left side guard positions. For the first, you move your right hand, which is holding the large sword, to the left, with the point of the sword forward and rather low, directed to the right. When your opponent attacks, you strike a third of the way through his movement. Your striking movement is as follows. You raise the sword, reaching with your arm in such a way that your hand goes beyond the point of your opponent's sword. After this strike, you must immediately turn the blade of your sword over. For the second, you hold your sword rather low with the point directed to the left. Your hand then touches your right leg and the blade of your sword is turned toward your opponent. You strike him as soon as he shows his intention to attack. Adjust the depth and force of your strike depending on your opponent. You must examine this strike well. 5. The Low Guard Position Suike no Kamae You hold the two swords with the points coming near one another, Downward and toward the inside, with the elbows broadly separated, without extending the arms. In this position, the small sword is placed forward. That is the low guard position. When your opponent attacks, 
As you cross his sword, you strike him on the central line, raising your sword up to the level of his forehead. You must strike broadly and fully, straight ahead. It is bad to cross the adversary's sword by moving your sword from the left side. After the strike, you must immediately turn the blade of your sword over. Depending on the situation, you could then adopt the right side guard position. You must use your judgment. With these five guards, you can deal with all situations. Without conforming to the principle of the nature of the sword, you will not be able to cut down your opponent. The following final sentences are no longer present in the Hyōhō Sanju Gokajō. I have written here the general principles of my school. To learn the principle of victory with the sword through strategy, you must master the five guards by means of five technical forms. Through this, you will be enabled to recognize the nature of the sword, and you will obtain flexibility of body. You will be able to find cadences that conform to the way on any occasion. These five articles are not found in any of Musashi's other writings. According to Ozawa Masao, six articles were added by Terao Motomenosuke to the 35 instructions on strategy, Hyōhō Sanju Gokajō, and together these constitute the 42 instructions on strategy, Hyōhō Shiju Nikajō, which he passed down to his disciples. Ozawa does not explain his reasons for this assertion, which is not very precise, because the difference between the two documents involves eight articles and not six. Ozawa counts the title as one article. By contrast, Mitsuhashi Kanichiro, a kendo master of the end of the 19th century, claims that this text was written by Musashi himself for his favorite disciple. Several hypotheses are possible. One, Musashi wrote the Hyōhō Shiju Nikajō in tandem with the Hyōhō Sanju Gokajō. He gave the latter to Lord Hosokawa, and by adding a number of articles to this, he generated the copy intended for his disciple. 2. Musashi wrote out two or more copies of the Hyōhō Sanju Gokajō, and he bestowed one of these on his disciple. 3. Before presenting the Hyōhō Sanju Gokajō to Lord Hosoka, Musashi allowed his disciple to copy down its contents. We have no historical basis for concluding in favor of any of these three hypotheses. Nevertheless, I have to say that the five last articles added in regarding the five directions of the guard, which I have translated above, are particularly difficult to understand. In addition, if these are compared with all the other texts written by Musashi, their style is found to be quite different. Why is Musashi's writing so unclear in these five articles? Translating the entirety of his works makes the difference in style between these five articles and the rest of his works stand out quite clearly. But does the English, which forces one to give a certain logical construction to the text, show this difference clearly? In view of this difference in style, I adopt the hypothesis that these articles were written by Terao Motomenosuke. The text is followed by a postface in which Terao, as was the custom, affirms the authenticity of the transmission, mentioning the founding master of the school. Postface
What I have written above comes from my master, Genshin Musashi. The master preserved from his youth in the way of strategy and was able to attain the ultimate level in all the domains of the art thanks to the principle of strategy. He engaged in more than 60 combats, either with the sword or with the bokto, wooden sword, without ever losing. In this way, he defeated the most famous adepts of all Japan. He continued to look for a more profound way, training from morning till night. Only after the age of 50 did he attain the ultimate state from which an extraordinary energy spontaneously emanates, and from that day on, he no longer had the need to go deeper. The master did not write anything about his art until he met Lord Hosokawa Tadatoshi of Hishi, Kumamoto, who pursued this way. This lord had studied the strategy of several schools and had received the highest transmission from Yagyu Tajima no Kami Munenori, the most celebrated master of strategy in Japan. The lord secretly believed he had attained the highest level. At the time of his meeting with the master, they fought, and the lord was completely dominated. He was astonished at the master's ability, and he asked him a number of questions. The master then replied, as far as the principle of strategy is concerned, this is true for all the schools. If the way of ultimate sincerity does not become one with what one is trying to do, it is not a true way. The Lord said, Although I am not very skillful, I will persevere until I arrive at this way. That is how the Master came to begin teaching him the way in private, and he presented to him his first writing. The Lord swiftly attained mastery thanks to his previous achievements in strategy. The Lord said, I have persevered in the art of the sword, Kenjutsu, from the time of my youth, and I have studied several schools in a conscientious manner. But I have understood that none of this was part of the true way. Everything that I had learned over a long period of time turned out to be useless and disappeared. In this, his joy was great. As for me, thanks be to heaven, I was able to meet my master, who granted me his special attention, and I was able to benefit from the depth of this relationship. I was able to attain the way by drinking at the spring of my master's mind by means of training. The master complimented me, saying, Until now I have taught a great number of people, but none of them was able to enter into the real way. Without attaining a true way, it is impossible to give a real transmission. Nobuyuki, Terao's name, you have great intelligence in strategy, and you can understand ten things on the basis of one. And thanks to your exceptional ability, you have reached the state where an extraordinary energy spontaneously emanates from your person. But this way is not a mere method of the sword, Kenjutsu, and very few people pursue it. Even if there are people who search for it, if they do not do so with a sincere mind and with great perseverance, it is better not to speak to them of anything, because they will never arrive at it. I passed a number of years without ever showing my art to anybody, saying to myself that teaching my art amounted to touching my nose to indicate my mouth. In this situation, I have a trustworthy friend, Yasumasa, with whom I have been training for a long time, 
and I wish to be able to continue to do so for the rest of my life. I know the real sincerity of his mind, through which he inevitably reaches success, and how could he fail? Therefore, I have transmitted everything to him, and he has attained the ultimate state of the way. It is for this reason that I bestow on him this text that comes from my master. This is an extraordinary occasion. The school that will be perpetuated for all eternity is called Niten Ichiryu, the school of two swords toward the sky. This is the strategy of the reality that has the fullness of a circle. The master gave it this name because all principles arise from emptiness. If there is no communication, there is no response. The fifteenth of the eighth month of the sixth year of Kambun, 1666, Terao Motomenosuke Nobuyuki. The way to be followed alone. Dokodo. One. Do not go against the way of the human world that is perpetuated from generation to generation. Two. Do not seek pleasure for its own sake. Three. Do not, in any circumstance, depend upon a partial feeling. 4. Think lightly of yourself and think deeply of the world. 5. Be detached from desire your whole life long. 6. Do not regret what you have done. 7. Never be jealous of others, either in good or in evil. 8. Never let yourself be saddened by a separation. 9. Resentment and complaint are appropriate neither for yourself nor for others. 10. Do not let yourself be guided by the feeling of love. 11. In all things, do not have any preferences. 12. Do not have any particular desire regarding your private domicile. 13. Do not pursue the taste of good food. 14. Do not possess ancient objects intended to be preserved for the future. 15. Do not act following customary beliefs. 16. Do not seek especially either to collect or to practice arms beyond what is useful. 17. Do not shun death in the way. 18. Do not seek to possess either goods or fiefs for your old age. 19. Respect Buddha and the gods without counting on their help. 20. You can abandon your own body but you must hold on to your honor. 21. Never stray from the way of strategy. The Way to be Followed Alone was written by Musashi in the few days preceding his death. We presently have two versions of the Dokodo. One has 19 articles and the other 21. Articles 4 and 20 
are absent from the shorter version. We know of certain moments in Musashi's life from a later text entitled Nitenki, Writings on the Two Heavens, according to which, one week before his death, Musashi gave away his personal objects to people close to him. On that occasion, he composed the 21 points entitled Dokodo, The Way Where One Walks Alone, which are a reflection on his life at the moment of death. He dedicated these thoughts to his disciple, Terao Magonojo, to whom he had also addressed the Gorin no Sho. Terao Magonojo took them as precepts. The sentences in the Dokodo are short, concentrated expressions. That is why their meaning is difficult to understand in the original text. Unless some commentary is added, the translation might be somewhat incomprehensible or lead to misunderstandings. These 21 thoughts of Musashi's require us to unpack the meaning of each word in order to get a sense of their overall significance, since each sentence distills Musashi's thought in a very few words and contains a great number of implicit notions meant to be understood by someone who has received his teaching at first hand. For this reason, a literal translation of this text, even if very well done, does not permit us to get at its meaning. Strictly speaking, Musashi himself and the disciple to whom these words were addressed doubtless remain the only ones able to decipher their meaning fully. We can get more or less close to the meaning of the text by elucidating the implicit notions the text contains. For each precept, I give the Japanese pronunciation because the sonority of the words contributes to their message. I then explain the meaning of the main words situating them in relation to their context. 1. Do not go against the way of the human world that is perpetuated from generation to generation. Yoyo no michi o somuku koto nashi. Yo, society, or the world of human beings, and in a broader sense, the world. The repetition of the term denotes the idea of succession and movement over time. Michi, the way, or principle. Somuku, to go against. Kotonashi, a negation applied to a verb. Nashi corresponds to the negation not, and koto, to the nominative form taken by the verb in this sentence. Yoyo no michi. The way of the human form that is perpetuated from generation to generation. According to Imai Masayuki, the present day and tenth successor of Musashi, this expression designates the way of wisdom, the true way that traverses time from the past to the future. This idea belongs to the tradition of Buddhism. According to Imai Masayuki, this sentence indicates the state of a man who is independent, yet acting freely, conforms to a truth of human nature. 2. Do not seek pleasure for its own sake. Mini tanoshimi o takumazu. Mi, the body, oneself. Tanoshimi, pleasure, enjoyment. Takumazu, negative form of the verb takumu, which means to elaborate. Look for good means.
In this precept, it is not only physical pleasure that is meant, but, in a more general sense, that which is pleasant and which Musashi has given up seeking intentionally. Would it be accurate to describe this ascetic attitude as masochism, as certain contemporary critics do? In my view, labels of this type result in hiding the true image of Musashi behind a smokescreen of current-day thinking. This may produce a clear image, but it is an illusory one. Renouncing pleasure for Musashi is a basic condition for arriving at what is essential. In this, he is following the path that has been followed by other great accomplished practitioners of the martial arts. Asceticism of this sort is connected with a view of life that sees the agreeable aspects of existence as obscuring its depth, which is hard and heavy. Musashi seeks to avoid being detained at the level of pleasure, which would only distract him from the essential. His idea is to confront the deeper and weightier aspect of life directly in order to attain the essence of his art, which is inseparable from life itself. Such a conception of life is derived from a synthesis of Buddhist thought with more ancient Japanese notions of nature and the world. One of the contributions of Buddhism to this synthesis is the notion that life contains apparently contradictory aspects that are nevertheless inseparable from one another. There is old age in youth, death in life, hatred in love, separation in meeting, bitterness in pleasure, and so on. In his effort to see the true face of existence, Musashi goes directly toward this most pithy and substantial aspect of it. Becoming detached from the power of his own desire enables his mind to discover true emptiness, ku. On that basis, a new dimension opens before him. Although Musashi does not mention Buddhist doctrine, in which the notion of emptiness is another key element, his orientation is deeply permeated by Japanese Buddhism. 3. Do not, in any circumstance, depend upon a partial feeling. Yorozu ni eko no kokoro nashi. Yorozu, literally, ten thousand, a very large number of things or phenomena, everything. Eko, dependency, that on which one is dependent, partial point of view, personal interest. Kokoro. Heart, mind, thought. The point here is to have an attitude toward all things and all persons that is neither dependent nor partial nor egotistic. This clear-sighted attitude, applied even to those close to one, might give an impression of coldness, and this is indicated by some documents on the subject of Musashi. 4. Think lightly of yourself and think deeply of the world. Mio asaku omoi, yo fukaku omo. Mi, the body, oneself. Asaku, asai, not deep, shallow. Fukaku, fukai, deep. Omoi, to think, to consider. 
First, we should point out the opposition here between self and the world. The word-for-word translation of the beginning of this sentence would be, think not deeply with regard to oneself. Musashi is telling us here that the proper way to look at things is not putting oneself at the center of them and not overestimating the weight of one's own existence. Such a self-centered view is often dominated by egocentric ideas and desires. He is inviting us to meditate on our own smallness in relation to a world that is moving in time, in eternity. 5. Be detached from desire your whole life long. All one's life. Aida, during. Yokushin, cupidity, lust. Omoazu, not thinking of, not having in mind, being detached from. According to Imai Masayuki, man is tormented by lusts of the following three kinds. The desire to be viewed favorably by others the egotistic desire for material riches, the desire to surpass others, to defeat them. According to Imai, the point here is to live in a state of detachment from these kinds of desire. 6. Do not regret what you have done. Waga koto ni oite, kōkai o sezu. Waga koto. One's own affair, what one has done. These ideograms can also be read ware koto. In this case, ware is the subject and the meaning is approximately the same. Oite in concerning. Kōkai, regret. Kōkai o sezu, do not regret. 7. Never be jealous of others either in good or in evil. Zenaku ni tao netamu kokoro nashi. Zenaku, good and evil, in any case. Tao, toward others. Netamu, to be jealous. Kokoro, heart, mind, thought. Nashi, do not have. 8. Never let yourself be saddened by a separation. Izure no michi ni mo wakare o kanashimazu. Izure no michi ni mo. In all ways, whatever the situation in which one finds oneself. Wakare, separation. Kanashimazu, do not be saddened. This is the negative form of kanashimu. The sadness of momentary separation or the separation of death is considered in Buddhism to be one of the causes of being drawn away from the essential. It arises from the illusion of seeking as immutable that which is transient. Let us not forget Musashi's own experience. He spent the greater part of his life traveling. 9. Resentment and complaint are appropriate neither for yourself nor for others. Jita tomoni urami kakotsu kokoro nashi. 
ji oneself, ta others, tomoni both together as well as, urami resentment, kakotsu complaining, kokoro heart mind thought, nashi negation. Ten. Do not let yourself be guided by the feeling of love. Renbo no michi omoi yoru kokoro nashi. Renbo, love, being in love. Michi, road, way, direction, orientation. Omoi yoru, literally, to think of and come near, to incline one's feeling toward a person. Kokoro, heart. Mind, thought, nashi, negation. Musashi never had a child. The documents we have do not tell of his having relations with a woman. Some interpret this as a will to control his desire so as to dedicate himself to the way. Others see it as a sign of homosexuality. This dictum militates in favor of the first hypothesis. 11. In all things, do not have any preferences. Monogoto ni skikomu koto nashi. Monogoto, each thing. Ni, in, concerning. Skikonomu koto, preference, predilection. Nashi, negation. 12. Do not have any particular desire regarding your private domicile. Shitaku ni oite nozomu kokoro nashi. Shitaku, domicile or private house. Ni oite, in. Nozomu, to desire. Kokoro, heart, mind, thought. Nashi, negation. For Musashi, it was necessary to be able to live wherever he was, whatever the conditions were. It was not a question of seeking out discomfort, but of not being attached to the quest for comfort in a dwelling place. There is no hindrance here to appreciate good things, but one must not be attached to them. All through his life, Musashi had to be able to be at home wherever he was, whether it was in a house or in a natural setting with the sky as his roof. Realizing this may help us to understand why he chose to spend the last two years of his life in a cave, although he had a comfortable house at his disposal. 13. Do not pursue the taste of good food. Mi hitotsu ni bishoku wo konomazu. Mi, one's body, oneself. Hitotsu, alone. Bishoku. Delicacy, good meal. Konomazu, do not prefer, do not love. This means not allowing oneself to be drawn by the taste of a good dish and being able to nourish oneself, whatever the nature of the food available. In the life of a bushi, it was necessary to face situations of war in which material conditions could reach levels of extreme privation. One had to be able to avoid being weakened by unfavorable material conditions. In addition, daily life was regarded as a preparation for war. In Musashi's time, wars began to occur more rarely, and keeping oneself in condition to deal with war became an ethical matter.
Another interpretation is possible. For a follower of the way, like Musashi, the taste of sophisticated cuisine would be a negative element, because it would run counter to his effort to relate to the profound nature of things, which is better reflected by the taste of simple food, not requiring fussy preparation. 14. Do not possess ancient objects intended to be preserved for the future. Suezue shiromono naru furuki dogu shoji sezu. Suezue, in the future, posterity. Shiromono, merchandise, object. Furuki, ancient, old. Dogu, object, utensil. Shoji sezu, do not possess. One becomes attached to an old object and tries to preserve it. One can possess an object, but can also be possessed by an object. A man might possess an object that came into his hands in a certain particular way and attach a special value to it for that reason, especially if that object came down to him from his ancestors. One must be wary of this sort of attachment, particularly if it comes into play in choosing a weapon. An antique object may be precious, but what is important here is usefulness. Therefore, it is necessary to free oneself from conditioning that is based on a value that is perverted from the point of view of one's primary goal. 15. Do not act following customary beliefs. Waga mini itari, monoimi suru koto nashi. Waga mi, my body, myself, ni itari, concerning. Monoimi, to avoid something because of a belief. Surukoto, doing, nominative form. Nashi, negation. There are many customs of monoimi in traditional Japanese usage. For example, one must not choose a course of action or a date without taking into account mandatory divinatory indications. For another example, it is believed that a person must preserve the purity of the body in order to please the gods, and numerous purificatory procedures exist. For this reason, also, a person must avoid certain places and certain acts. As an expression of mourning, close relatives are required to remain shut up indoors for a longer or shorter period, from a week up to a hundred days. A number of these ancient beliefs are still observed in present-day Japan. The important point here is that in a period in which most Japanese were subject to a great number of superstitious beliefs, Musashi dared to reject them in order to try to see the world as it is. 16. Do not seek especially either to collect or to practice arms beyond what is useful. Hyogu arms, weaponry. Kukubetsu, particularly, especially. Yono, supplementarily, in surplus, outside of. Dogu, utensil, object. Tashinamazu, negative form of tashinamu, do not like to practice or collect. 
For Musashi, under no circumstances were weapons collectible objects, even if they had great aesthetic qualities. One had to know how to use them correctly and have the ones that were necessary. If they were not available, one had to know how to make them oneself. Musashi himself handmade a considerable number of weapons. 17. Do not shun death in the way. Michi ni oite wa shi o itowazu omou. Michi, the way, ni oite wa in shi o toward death, itowazu, negative form of itou, do not detest, do not avoid or shun. Omou, to think, to consider. Musashi also presents this idea in the scroll of earth in the Gorin no Sho. 18. Do not seek to possess either goods or fiefs for your old age. Rōgō ni zaihō mochiyuru shōryō ni kokoro nashi. Rōgō ni having grown old, being old. Zaihō, treasure. Mochiyuru, to possess. Shōryō, fief. Kokoro, heart, mind. Thought. Nashi. Negation. 19. Respect Buddha and the gods without counting on their help. Bushin wa totoshi. Bushin o tanomazu. Bushin. Buddha and the gods. Totoshi. Respectable. Tanomazu. Not depending on. Not counting on someone. Negative form of tanomu. 20. You can abandon your own body, but you must hold on to your honor. Mi o stetemo, myori wa stezu. Mi, the body, oneself. Stetemo, even if one abandons. Steru, to abandon. Myori, reputation, honor. Stezu. To not abandon. Negative form of steru. 21. Never stray from the way of strategy. Tsuneni hyōhō no michi wo hanarezu. Tsuneni, always, at any moment. Michi, the way. Hanarezu, to not stray from, not deviate from. Negative form of hanareru. The Dokodo brings out the asceticism that Musashi advocates in connection with the way of strategy. The life and works of Musashi have been the object of systematic eulogies and passionate critiques. Thus, some of our contemporaries have described him as obsessive, paranoid, and the like. But these judgments do not take into account the lifestyle of his period. Nonetheless, we can also adopt a critical attitude. Musashi represents a form of fruition of the practice of the arts of his time, and the works he left behind are a reflection of this. In order to understand Musashi's personality, we must see what he did in relation to what he was seeking to do, and also take into account the innovative qualities of his quest when seen within the context of this period in history.
His writings show that his mental and spiritual stance does not arise from the context of the ordinary preoccupations of ordinary people. Rather, his entire life was structured around the extended dynamics of the way of strategy. However, we shall see from other examples that this total concentration of his on the way, as rare and exceptional as it was, had an exemplary value for the society in which he was living. Is strategy not a positive way of shaping the human energy of society as a whole, a way that does not hide either from life's harshness or from death? Both in connection with the martial arts and in terms of daily life, it would be unjust to judge Musashi's thought on the basis of the forms of security and comfort that we are familiar with, on our values and our conception of death. This has been an Audible Studios production of The Complete Book of Five Rings, written by Miyamoto Musashi, edited and translated by Kenji Tokitsu, narrated by Brian Nishi, producer Mike Charzuk, copyright 2000 by Kenji Tokitsu, English translation, copyright 2010 by Shambhala Publications. Inc. Production copyright 2014 by Audible Inc. Audible Studios is a division of Audible Inc. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.